fear reigns. Sometimes it hails. Other times it's very dry. You might need to put on a humidifier at night so you don't get a nosebleed. I get one anyways. Oh, poor fella. <laughs> this is Slashers, a podcast about movies and horror for those who love horror. My name is Jake, and with me, as always, is my esteemed colleague, co-host, and cohort, Brian. Brian, say hello to the mutant goons from beyond. I'm going to steal it from Jim. What's up, fuck boys? Wee, wee, wee. I never say that. <laughs> the sacrosanct little cherub to my left. Jim, say hello to everyone. Hello, everyone. Dude, you're becoming a regular staple on the show. I Remember know. there was a time where you just used to sit and watch us, and now you're like in the fray of it. What's it feel like? <laughs> Good. Do you feel like a kid who was like on the bench and like, call me in, coach, and then you just jump on in? No, because I literally sat there once. Yeah, really. <laughs> and the next time we're like, hey, uh, have you seen the movie? And you're like, yeah. And you're like about 20 minutes ago, like, okay, great. That's good enough. Get on the show. And that was arachnophobia. Yep. Remember when once upon a time we used to order Jim to get his coffee? He got his coffee today. (laughs) Totally. I offered. (laughs) He's like within and without at the same time. He's a host, but then he's also an intern. Very gracious. So guys, a lot of people are probably going to see the title of this episode and be like, two reasons why we are doing 13th Warrior. One, the original cut of the movie was actually very much more horrific as evidenced by the trailer, which you can find on YouTube. And two, I don't know if you noticed, but these motherfuckers be quealing axes and swords. And what do you do with those weapons? You slash. Or you hack. Okay. We're not hackers, (laughs) a horror movie podcast. We are slashers. Well, I mean, just throwing it out there. Well, throw it back to yourself. Okay. In one of those springy net things that sad kids play with, you know what I'm talking about? The springy net thing where you throw the ball into it and it bounces back because your dad's off with his new girlfriend, Tina. Maybe I'm just so used to hacking because <laughs> I just hacked away at all the fucking tree branches that fell on my house over this past week. Oh, no. Garbage. Pobrecito. I mean, it was fun. You could have slashed those too. See, it would have been way easier. <laughs> Get some Cutco knives. I'm very surprised <laughs> that Cutco hasn't branded with Michael Myers. Like, come on. Yeah, that's true. Maybe I need myself a samurai sword. Hell yeah. Are you excited about this one, Brian? Because you had you seen this movie before? Never seen it, and I was pleasantly surprised. And Jim, you've both seen and read, right? Yeah. I had seen many, 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 many times, but had never read until now. And honestly, having read it gets you through that first hour of purgatory before you get to that second hour, which truly, in my opinion, I would put up against like Lord of the Rings level goodness in that hour. Sure, you have to get through some sh- like just boring schlock, but when you know the reasons that it's in from the book, you're like, oh, this is quite nice. Right. It adds a little extra to it. It gives you a reason, right? right? I mean, like, what do you care about the girl? Well, I mean, they actually do a fairly good job of making that relevant when she they do the funeral rites. But, you know, his backstory and stuff, which they dramatize compared to the book. So even in the book, it's way more bland, but we will get into it. I have a thesis for this episode, gentlemen. Starting to do those. I don't know if it's a regular theme, but basically I want people to know the perspective that I have going into the episode. The Eaters of the Dead book by Michael Crichton is basically Abraham Lincoln vampire hunter from the 70s. That makes sense. Because he took a historical character and was like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if blank? That's basically the exact same thing. Ahmad Ibn Fadlan was an actual person. He was an Arab Muslim who lived in the 10th century. He was a traveler, and he became very famous as a member of the embassy of Abbasid Caliph of Baghdad, and he went to the Volga Bulgars, 
which is really fun to say. When he, I first heard that, I thought he said bur- boogers. <laughs> Vulgar boogers. <laughs> it's obscene. <laughs> so he created what was known as the Risala, which is his accounting or his journal. And in that, he actually was able to describe in very vivid detail the funeral rites of the Vikings. Now, what's very interesting about the Bulgar area, where he went with the Vulgars is Volga Bulgar was Volga Bulgaria. And where it was centrally located, it allowed them to have trade bustling or burgeoning trade, if you will, with Arabs, Norse, and Avars. So that's why it's not absolutely bizarre. And the way that they overlap with language, which you see in the movie, which a lot of people remember that scene where he figures out their language. In the book, he never learns their language. What he ends up using is he initially uses his associate to speak Greek. From Greek, they establish a commonality with Latin, and then they speak that way. That makes sense. And so it's very cool because they overlap. In this, they show it seeming way more remote, which I like, but I don't think they do a good enough job of showing the distance. They show a length of time, but you get my point. Basically, the point is this is a real guy who lived in a real life who created something that's you know, actually, you can find it. I have a scribed account. I read his actual manuscript. It's very interesting. And so they just took it, used that as a base, and then added all of the supplemental fictional material on top of it. And I did a class in my undergrad where it was historical fiction. And I remember thinking as I was taking the class, this is bullshit. And now I read it and I was like, this is fun. That's so fun. Like watch the Discovery Channel. I like how not only does he just take this real account and fictionize it, whatever you want to call it. He takes it and blends it so well with Beowulf, too. Oh, yeah. So it's I feel like we got to mention that because it's literally a retelling of it. So it started off, one of his colleagues was teaching a class, and basically he had said, Beowulf's not relevant. Kids don't care. And he's like, kids have to care. This is myth and mythos. This is like the substance of story. And then what's interesting is he makes this story, but in doing so, strips it of the mysticism to make it more mythic. Right. I feel like this is way more mythic to me because I just, you know, Brian was gracious enough to edit our last episode, so it gave me plenty of free time. So (laughs) I was able to read this book. I read... Uh, Norse mythology by Neil Gaiman. I read Beowulf again, and I read Abad Ibn Fadlan's manuscript. No big deal. I'm fine. <laughs> I sleep all the time. What do you? Okay, I'm awake again. Uh, but my point being, I lost where I am because I'm in a nightmare always. <laughs> okay, so do you think that you say he he stripped it back, but then it became more mythical? Are you talking about in the sense that the Wendell are? from Ibn Fadlan's account are supposed to be Neanderthal or, or some other than Homo sapien, some more primitive man. Exactly. But we don't know. So it, it kind of throws this like wrench into the historical fiction part where, or the historical part of the fiction where something happened. There was some sort of man like people, but we don't know. We really have no clue what they were because we don't, I mean, if you look at Neanderthals, we've had 80 fossils, not complete that we found over human history. And at some point, they just disappeared. That doesn't mean that they didn't exist beyond that point. Yeah, I think it's Crichton doing what Crichton does best, taking something real and just going and tweaking it. We know that Neanderthals did exist at a certain point, but that mystery of where did they go? Why did they disappear? The fact that they've always been there. This is just, I mean, it's obviously not in scope as mythical or as extravagant, but it is basically the same thing he does with Jurassic Park where he takes an unanswered thing, he takes something and brings it into relatively the modern day. 921 AD is as close as you're going to get, right? 
And so having these cavemen, I think, is really an interesting juxtaposition. And, you know, there are paleolithic, Scientology, scientific. Nope, not Scientology. Different one. (laughs) Archaeologist. John Travolta. Yes, exactly. Dr. John Travolta, who will tell you that there's a time where like Homo sapien, Neanderthal, Cro-Magnon, where there's an overlap. Well, how do you reconcile those? You're similar enough, but you're different enough. You know, you compare us to a chimpanzee. I think we have like a 6% variance in our DNA. Yeah, maybe even less. So imagine how similar you are to a Neanderthal. You could probably get a Neanderthal to ride on that dick and you could probably make (laughs) a viable kid. I mean, that's a fucked up thing to think about. Yeah. Talking about scope. (laughs) Scope. You want to rinse your eyes out with some scope because of that mental image? Uh, But talking about the scope. (laughs) (laughs) So he he dials it back. It's not like Jurassic Park in scope. But yep. that vagueness of it makes it just your my mind just like so much more like what the hell like what could it be you know oh yeah the first time you see the movie and every time after that you're like okay it's just people when you're first watching the movie I vividly remember being a kid and being like are they supposed to be like creatures or whatever and you know it kind of does what Sleepaway Camp does so well and I'm not going to spoil Sleepaway Camp for you if you haven't seen it but I know that you guys have seen it by this point. The idea that what could appear to be lazy filmmaking is actually brilliant storytelling. And so in this where you see that like the claw arm is like a prop or it's a weapon, it's not a poor you know, visual cue from the filmmaker. That is a cue in story. And so I remember being as a kid, like figuring it out. And then you see it and it's like, I didn't feel let down. But a, a lot of criticism I saw online, it's like, oh, it's just a caveman. I'm like, well, I looks kind of like Darth Maul to me. He's got spikes coming out of his head and red and black tribal. I'm like, what's up, dog? Yeah, they do a really good job at explaining why there are never any bodies left. And I thought that was really neat. Something that maybe nobody would think of at first, but they just, wow, they seem to melt away after the mist goes away. Well, they're taking the dead bodies and they're eating them. Which right? clearly they learned from Bigfoot, right? That's what Bigfeet do. That's why we don't see Bigfoot. But they are Bigfoot. There's no question they're Bigfoot. Brian, why are you laughing? Bigfoot is real. Nope, definitely. Absolutely real. I live in mountains, so (laughs) maybe I'll see him. Yeah, maybe he'll help you clean all the bramble off your house. God damn it. So in 1976, the book lends itself to say that there is a manuscript of uh, Fadlan's writings that's at the University of Oslo. Well, the funny fact is that they actually had to literally send out something saying, no, this is not true. You've been duped. It's completely fake, which they say that the translation is Frau Dolis, which is two Latin words, which mean hoax and fraud. So people after this book came out back in 76 were like, oh, shit, dog, this is awesome. And writing to this place saying, hey, can we get a copy of the manuscript? Can I come and inspect the manuscript? And like, you could if it existed. It's so funny. It's a Blair Witch Project on top of everything else. So in the book, he references the different manuscripts and translations that he referenced. Correct. And many of them. That's one of the things that's cool. He adds a lot of them, yeah. So do you know what this, the Ahmad Tusi manuscript, what did he take from that to put in the story? Because I have no idea. The original manuscript is not very long. It's not incredibly detailed. Basically, the reason it's a relevant treatise is as a view into the funeral rites is basically what people look at it for now. And so he just expands on it because it's the overlapping mesh of an Arab with a Norseman. And you have to keep in mind, people really want to generalize Scandinavian culture and society. The vulgar uh, bulgar region that we're talking about, the Volga bulgar region. God, I'm so stupid. <laughs> the vulgar bulgar. Vulgar bulgar. It ranged, I mean, an incredible amount of space. You're talking all the way from Russia and so forth. 
And so there's a level of complexity I don't think people really appreciate when it comes to the Scandinavians, when it comes to their language, their written language. There are a bunch of people online who like to talk shit about Buleff when he's like, oh, I, oh do you, can you write words that stay? And people are like, well, cool, he's got runes on his clothes and stuff, so he's got to know what words are. A, he's speaking to somebody who's not native in his tongue. And B, just because he knows what writing is doesn't mean he is literate. So a lot of people want to point fingers at it, but the whole construct of this time and era is very unique in history. When it comes to written words, and this is a tradition of oral storytelling. A lot of people really think that the Beowulf legend goes back thousands of years versus the way that it's been translated. If you read Beowulf modernly, people often pontificate that it was written by two or transcribed rather by two monks of Christian religion or whatever, because they refer to a singular Christian God versus what mm. would have likely been very clearly Norse mythos at this point. So I don't know if I'm even making sense. I'm just super <laughs> passionate about this because you let me dive into the weeds. It go. is so fun. Like there's so much cool stuff. I highly recommend going out there and reading about the underlying culture because it'll make you love this movie, even the dry bits. You know what's really crazy is if you get down to the brass tacks of it, Oral history is essentially just a giant game of telephone. And you're like, well, let's see where this ends up. Exactly. <laughs> and you talk about the wild variations of stuff. I mean, that's one of the things that's so fascinating about Greek mythos and Roman mythos. You have so many overlapping stories. And, and Norse mythos. The crazy thing about Norse mythology is that I'm calming myself down. I'm super <laughs> excited about this. But Norse mythology wasn't transcribed until after the Christians had basically dominated the area. So pagans are gone and Norse are gone. And so basically, the Christians basically can, I'm just going to cross this off here. Yep. I'm going to highlight this here and I'm going to change this completely. There's a lot of analysis that goes to a lot of the Norse gods being very foolish or conniving or underhanded because they are not the one true Christian god. How wow. fucked is that? And there's a lot of people who will pontificate. I'm one of them that the whole idea of the Holy Trinity is meant to create a polytheistic religion so that they could approach pagans and Norse who have a polytheistic religion and say, oh, well, you know, you have We have this, you have this, let's get together and let's make something. Let's call the whole thing off. Right. Exactly. One thing I really wanted to mention before we got too far into it, because I'm rambling very fast, super excited as you might have been able to tell, there is a boat called the Nagelfar. Do you know what that is? It's the reason that you cut the toenails off of your dead folk, because it is a boat made of dead people toenails It'll come and kill you. And the reason in Norse mythos that it's so important to do the funeral rites, which seem, um, how you say, butt-fucking-crazy, because it's like Egyptians, but butt-fucking-crazy, the reason it's important because they had their own version of basically zombies that are called the Draugr, which are a little bit smarter. It's kind of like Pet cemetery, where you don't do the funeral rites correctly, you run the risk of them coming back. Hence the burning of the body. I've played Skyrim. I was going to say, Draugr <laughs> comes from Skyrim. Well, it well, comes from, from this. But well, it, yeah. But multiple actors from this are in Skyrim. And they're, really? Yeah. And oh, if you look at the awesome. cave structures, I because I hadn't played Skyrim because I uh, don't have a thousand hours to dump into anything <laughs> except for apparently reading 2,000-year-old manuscripts. I don't know. I don't know anything. <laughs> but my point being, you can look at visual comparisons even to this film, and it's pretty overt, which is cool because I, I truly feel my second thesis, 9-11 ruins this movie. Because I used to watch this movie all the time on HBO. And you have a character who is an Arab, who is a oh. Muslim Arab, who is suddenly disappeared just years after this movie came out. I used to watch this movie at least once a week when it was on HBO and Showtime and everything. 
Can you find it on any streaming service, Brian? No, we had to steal it. All of us did. That's <laughs> on stream. I watched it on Amazon. You had to pay for it though. Yeah, I were into See? it. See, but... because he, or I said, almost someone said Elon Musk. Because Jeff Bezos <laughs> is like, you have to pay to be an Al Qaeda. Might also be Elon Musk. Who knows? Yeah, right. They're all the same person. Just some white guy with a weird voice and a poofy jacket. Shall we get into the statistics, or do you want me to rant some more? Because I have a lot of material prepared. I could do a tight five if you want. I'm just kidding. Statistics. <laughs> Save me from myself, gentlemen. So basically, the budget came out to 100 to 160 mil. So what does that exactly entail between 100 and 160 mil? Generally, that refers to the budget of the marketing. A lot of people, by modern standards, you're just going to take the budget of the movie and basically double it for marketing. Wow. For international, because that's how much it costs. And so a lot of people skew statistics. And sometimes for streaming rights and distribution rights, you actually want it to appear to have made less money. The analytics are very weird. Well, after the fact, I feel like they definitely want to go on the lower end of this and say, well, it <laughs> yeah. was only this modest amount that... <laughs> and I'm not trying to be like, I know that it sounds like a silly thing to say 9-11, blah, blah, blah. I presented it in a silly way. But when you think about it, this is the perfect movie to do the you know HBO TNT circuit. Right. Remember, mm. hey, Beastmasters on when I was telling you guys where Beastmaster didn't do great in theaters, but it was always on TNT. It was always on HBO because it was easy to access and it over and over and over. And you make up the money there. What were the two ferrets called? In Beastmaster. Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. <laughs> <laughs> it was like Poe and something. Actually, in Don Cascarelli's book, they talk about with Kodo and Poto when they do the kiss on the panther. It's actually, first of all, it's not even panther. It's a tiger that's painted black because panthers are not necessarily trainable. But they were like, we're not going to shoot this. That tiger will eat that fucking ferret. <laughs> and it worked out. Don refused to actually direct that scene. So one of the like shitty underlings was like, aha, I'll do it. And he's like, I had showed you it worked. I was like, yeah, that was like like a lightning As in a bottle. preparing funeral rides for the fucking ferrets. Uh, that, that, oh, I was, what was that? That was the wedding. Well. It shows you what I think about my matrimony. <laughs> it's a great thing my wife doesn't listen to these episodes. I am on fire right now. I know this is not exciting to listen to, but I am so excited about this episode. Sorry about it. Uh, so, Brian, what else can we talk about with this? So I shut up. Essentially, again, like I said, the budget came out to 100 to 160 mil, somewhere between there. How much did it gross? 32.7 million domestically what did that come out to worldwide 61.7 what did it come out to with the net loss we're definitely in the negatives right guys hardcore 70 to 130 million dollars for the guy who had done jurassic park congo sphere i mean this is a big miss for oh and then also we could talk about mctiernan who have you heard of die hard have you heard of Predator? Like these guys should have on paper blown it out of the fucking water. Why do you guys feel like it failed so far or so hard? I should say 9-11. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, there are a lot of factors. I think the competition is very like a serious consideration in this. Now, the weekend came out eight twenty seven ninety nine. It made $10 million. Not terrible, but pretty bad. Why? Because you still had titanic in theaters you had sixth sense which was still number one in the box office wait did i say titanic wait blair witch sixth sense lake placid i don't know if titanic was a titanic was released december 19th 1997 this was released in 98 
So yeah, it, the timeline matches up because they had an extended release for it. So I think that might have been what I was reading or maybe a re-extend, like a, a re-release in theaters because I saw some analysis talking about how that was one of the reasons why. So the competition for the actual week of, you had the astronaut's wife, Dudley Do-Right, and the Muse. And in the Muse, you get to see Sharon Stone's butt. So that's probably the big reason we <laughs> flopped. If I get a choice, if I can see Basic Instinct with Albert Brooks in it, and it's a comedy, I mean, well, two birds, one stone. Now, earlier in the month, eight six ninety nine is when Sixth Sense came out. Seven fourteen ninety nine. this is the big one. This is the game changer. Blair Witch Project comes out, which oddly kind of overlaps with this movie quite a bit. 716, you had Lake Placid. 723, you had The Haunting. And 728, you had Deep Blue Sea. So this PG-13 to like low-rated R was super saturated this summer, which I think is basically it. Like you're coming to the end of summer. You're talking about fatigue. It's the second to last weekend of that summer season. I think that kind of shot it in the foot. You want to know how you know when you're old? When you read Blair Witch Project, 71499. Jesus Christ, how long ago was that, guys? God. 20 years. 20 years. Yikes. It's like a different lifetime. I saw that in theaters and I almost threw up. Yeah, that vision, right? Mm-hmm. I remember people throwing up uh, when I saw the Born, the second Born movie. People were like, oh my God, I can't. Because I think it's like less than two seconds on average per shot in that film. Honestly, it ruins those movies for me. I love them all. I love I, them I all. I can't stand Oh my God. I even like Jeremy Renner's and people talk shit on that one. We need to have a, a Born <laughs> movie fest. Hell yeah. It's awesome. You know what I want to do the next time I'm sick? I'm going to take Airborne and I'm going to jump on my bed and watch Jason Bourne. So I'll be Airborne on Airborne. Mm. Nobody. Okay. <laughs> also, a huge factor is the delays in shooting. This movie was originally supposed to come out in 1997. Didn't come out until 98. And we're talking third quarter 98. So that probably dips into it as well because the momentum that you're getting, the production and everything kind of dials back. And like I said, there was a whole ad campaign McTiernan's version, which was very horror and severe, completely remarketed as a triumphant Viking adventure. Very different theme. Which goes, plays into the name of the actual original, right? Eaters of the Dead. And you prefer that name. I like it. Although, again, as I was saying earlier, uh, maybe off air, but I feel like none of these titles between 13th Warrior and Eaters of the Dead play a big part in what actually happens within the film. So I I don't know, maybe one or two times 13th Warrior was mentioned. Eater of the Dead basically is mentioned once, maybe twice about what why these people attack or he doesn't he actually bring up the fact that some of these dead bodies have been eaten a little bit. Correct. And you could see the makeup is clearly like bite marks out of them. Yeah, when they first they first come across the the farmstead that's in the trees. Right. And it, did you guys they, find that funny? I'm they, sorry, I'm jumping ahead. But did okay. you did you find it funny how he sees all of these dead bodies and bites taken out of these people, but then the arm falling out of uh, from underneath the cover is the one that actually makes him sick? Yeah. In the book, they say he, quote unquote, relieves himself multiple times. This dude be up chucking all the time. Maybe he had some bad Montezuma's revenge. His him being not a fighter that much more believable. Right. Yeah, he's definitely a gentle soul. He's not anything else. And in this, they make him even more so by making him a poet. Really, he's more of a diplomat. But the point being, this is not a well-trained guy. I feel like Jim and I were kind of debating about this. I don't mind the scimitar thing, aside from the anachronism of the weapon itself. And also the fact that I've watched tons of Forged in Fire, and that's not how you forge a blade, but whatever. But Jim's like, he's suddenly Kung Fu Man, and he's like able to technique and swa-swa. And I'm like, eh. 
he's kind of doing it unopposed because I really like what Brian and I were talking about because I was pitting you guys against each other <laughs> where I like that he's like flailing his sword around with no technique when it's actual combat. Right. Any dickhead can be Star Wars kid and flail a weapon around and try and look cool on camera, but it takes a different guy to actually flail around like against another person. And it also illustrates the difference in size of weapons, especially between the giant Norse and Antonio Banderas, right? Or his character, Eben? Eben Fadlan. Little brother? Little brother. (laughs) So, yeah, it makes sense that they would hand him this giant sword and say, hey, have at it. And then him being like, "Uh, well, I can't even fucking swing this thing with both arms. How am I going to be able to do anything with this? Yeah, I actually really, that's one of my favorite things. It kind of became a bit of a meme years ago where he's like, I cannot lift this. And he's just, grow stronger. (laughs) (laughs) I just think it's super fun. Now, the original cut for Eaters of the Dead was an hour 20. Oh, Jim, I didn't ask you. Do you like Eaters of the Dead or 13th Warrior as a title better? I kind of like 13th Warrior just because it's so focused on Fadlan. Like, it's his story exactly. of what he goes through. And then it's a story about a story, right? right. It's because when you get to the end, you're realizing that it's not Fadlan's story that's important. It's him writing the story of Buleth that's important. It's storyception. Exactly. Yeah, kind of. It makes it epic in a different scope. And so it's really central around him. I like that. Eaters of the Dead sounds cool. I, it sounds a little camp 1950s to me. I don't dislike the name at all, but I think that the 13th Warrior, the vagueness of it all, and if you look at the symbology of the number 13 in Norse mythos, it's super important. Like Even in the book, they talk about there's an encampment of 16 houses. They refuse to say such. They call it an encampment of 13 houses plus three houses. Reason being, under their view of the calendar, there were 13 full moons. So it's very important. This is a very special number to them. So the fact of it really adds a little oomph and gumption, which you kind of lose in the movie when it comes to the right, angel of right. death. I actually think they said something about that there being 13 months in a yeah, year, right? Okay. So, Brian, who was originally going to direct this film? No idea. Who is was it, it? Is it Stuart Gordon? <laughs> it might be. I'm pretty sure it is. I feel like you should say that Stuart Gordon almost directed <laughs> this film. As you can see, I'm not actually on that part of the notes. Yeah. It is Stuart Gordon. In 1990. Stuart Gordon, if you must know, did Reanimator and Castle Freak. Whip it good. Didn't we do Castle Freak? Yes, we did. Yeah. Giorgio. What is it? Snaggleface McDickless? And then right afterward, right afterward, because <laughs> yeah, right he has no dick. <laughs> right afterward, who covered Castle Freak? Joe Bob Briggs. That's right. I think the legend a, himself. I think we had a string of similarities between our show and then Joe Bob Briggs. Yeah, he had Chud as well. So what I'm thinking it is, I don't think that he followed us. I think that the people over at Shudder went on Google and looked at the analytics, and there was a slight peak for one day, and they were like, oh, <laughs> these movies are super cheap and shitty. We'll just do those. Hey, three people searched this. Let's do it. It's a party. Look at you guys, influencers. So then nine years. Well, at that point, it was like five years had passed. The rights go. Gordon goes on to another project. And we get John Campbell, McTiernan Jr., Die Hard, Predator, Hunt for Red October, Last Action Hero, also a flop. That is amazing. Die Hard with a Vengeance, which I've seen more than the original. Thomas Crown Affair, which I think you get to see Rene Russo naked. And the shitty Rollerball remake, which ultimately got him federal prison time. (laughs) 
We will get into it. <laughs> this is why I love that Jim is meticulous and takes his own notes because I get to see surprise looks like that. He's like, what? This is times like that I miss that we don't do the video podcast anymore because he literally looked like he was going to shit out his pupils. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, dude. We'll get into it. So McTiernan is all in Brian's camp. He called the change from Eaters of the Dead to the 13th Warrior, quote, a lightweight title. I like it. Not to be confused with your 155 pounders over in MMA land. Now, Crichton was ultimately inspired to change the name when he was watering his plants and his neighbor came up and was basically like, I don't like the time. That's so random. Right? Like, you don't you think about like weird things like that in life? Like, they talk about the butterfly effect. What if he started on the other side of his lawn watering that morning? <laughs> right? He probably wouldn't have crossed into his neighbor or maybe it would be inconvenient. Well, what if he just hit the snooze button one time? This would be Eaters of the Dead. There'd be no question. Weird. Maybe it wouldn't <laughs> have been a flop. Oh. Not a problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so McTiernan was not very happy that they added the extra violence to get it from PG-13 to R. One of the things we had talked about was they added a significant amount of gore effects so that they could actually have that rating because it was kind of a teeterer. And he said that it was, quote, kind of silly violence. So he wasn't even a huge fan. Now, here's something I wanted to throw your way. The Snyder Cut of Justice League. It's been trending for, what, two years now? People are like, oh, release the Snyder Cut. Oh, my God. He just said something about it. It's it's coming. Oh, you know, like, he has it in the cans. He's showing oh, the okay. film of it. Then people are like, oh, my God. And Jason Momoa is like, it's so good. And I'm like, shut the fuck up. Like, you, we know you're hyping it so you can get a DVD release. I get it. Fuck off. Give me five minutes of peace in my life. There's too much content out there. But McTiernan has basically done the exact opposite. He said, quote, there's a director's cut. That is different in several ways, but I can't claim there's a magnificent movie that's sitting in a can somewhere. Maybe it's better leaving it as a myth. So even he's like, yeah, there's still some flaws. Do you think that maybe pushing for so much violence and getting that R actually ended up doing the opposite effect of what they hoped in getting them the bigger gross? I, I truly think so. Rated R movies generally don't do well. I mean, look at like Deadpool was a huge anomaly. Rated R movies aren't gangbusters. That's why you have Lord of the Rings and such like that, where Peter Jackson very innovatively used the Barry Windsor Smith method of instead of using red blood, using black blood so you can get around censorship. Because I saw this as when I was a preteen. So I thought it was completely appropriate. But also, I had a very skewed vision. But really, there isn't a whole lot in this movie that makes it rated R. So I think it was kind of a dumb move. However much I love the gore effects in this they movie. They needed some boobies. Well, they have statue boobies. Not the same. Statutory. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think to your point that it did hurt the movie pretty significantly. I think if it would have been PG-13, especially in that era, I mean, like all the movies we talked about that are PG-13 that came out that summer, you're going to cap it off with a rated R movie that was way over budget. Yeah, and then you can imagine after the fact you have blockbuster video you have pg-13 this giant rack full of all these movies and then you have this like curtained off area that says people over 18 and no kid gets to see it right all for just being able to rip off someone's head yeah and then you know like a slash effect across somebody's stomach and some like chunky bits on the floor right but usually you find that you know filmmakers are desperately trying to get around it and say that it's not rated r Right. You know, I think we've talked about like, you know, the great lengths John Carpenter went through with Assault on pre 13 and a few other ones. So, yeah. Now, pretty late into production, it goes from McTiernan 
over to Michael Crichton, who ends up directing several reshoots. And he tightens up the movie because it goes from 127-minute runtime to 103-minute runtime. So you could imagine that's a lot of bloating that was cut down, which is why I feel, I won't say that it's like two movies combined, but the pacing and structure is very much very slow and methodical. There's, there's a lot of buildup. And then that end is so smooth. Yep. And I think that that kind of comes from Crichton being like, who gives a fuck? I'm the guy who wrote it, and I don't even care about the subplot with the prince. I'm the guy who wrote it. I don't even care if he ever sees that blonde chick again, which in the book, after he kills a guy for the first time, he fucks that chick's head off. He's like, oh, 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 testosterone. Her head comes off? No. <laughs> I was kind of intrigued. Pop. And then a, a bear man comes up and gets it. Gonna eat that. <laughs> he had to get the R rating from the book somehow. Yeah, right. So I wanted to briefly touch on McTiernan going to federal prison because oh. I saw Jim's eyes light up. Please. So while he was making the Rollerball remake, he put a wiretap. He had his investigator, Anthony Pelicano investigate Charles Rovin, who was a co-producer on Rollerball, and then he pleaded guilty April 17, 2006 in an initial plea bargain. Then he got new counsel and tried to back out of it. They said that he could. Ultimately, he ends up in October 2008. They vacated the original four-month sentence, and he ends up with a new plea deal because new charges came up after the fact, including perjury charges from the first trial. Goddamn, they should have just went with the first one. They really should have. On August 20th, my birthday, 2012, a Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals affirmed the district court judgment but allowed him to address the U.S. Supreme Court. January 14, 2013, Supreme Court was like, hey, guess what? Not going to see your case. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg was in the background doing push-ups. Fuck you. I ain't got time for this shit. I'm here to change the world. I dissent. And then he went to a Yakton penitentiary and Forbes magazine named it one of America's 10 cushiest prisons. That just sounds silly that Forbes would have some sort of a poll about that. Well, it's it's white collar. That's really (laughs) what it comes down to is the places where all these people go. It's like, oh, it's a resort. It's basically where Jared from Subway is. Oh, God. I hope he's eating a foot long somewhere in both ends. (laughs) Now, McTiernan's former wife also accused him of wiretapping in July of 2006. So that was very interesting. So not necessarily the best of dudes. He's trying to make a career comeback. Dude, you have like three pages of notes on this. I do. I think it's, well, I'm an attorney. What the hell did you expect? <laughs> I went like buck wild reading this. Like, oh my God, it's so fascinating. Whoopsie. Maybe if there is documentary proof that you did wiretap, you shouldn't say that you didn't. That's my legal advice. I was trying to read through the notes just to see what it was about. And I had to stop like a paragraph. In. Yeah, sorry <laughs> about it. So this was written. By William Wisher Jr. and Warren Lewis. Jim, why should we know those names? Brian, why should we know those names? In the first Terminator film, Wisher had a brief role as 1L19. Real name? Unknown. A police officer who has his head smashed into his own police cruiser. That's a pretty sweet way to die. Hell yeah, it is. Who then steals his vehicle and briefly assumes his identity on the police radio band. He also has a cameo appearance in Terminator 2 Judgment Day as a man who takes pictures of Arnold Schwarzenegger's T-800 Terminator getting back on his feet after being thrown through a store window. And as news reporter Bill Tyler in Cameron's 1980 film The Abyss. 
So the guy does a lot of cameo shit. Yeah, it's pretty important. That scene is actually really fun. I don't know if you remember where he's sitting there. He's like mesmerized, not even looking through the camera. And it's at the the Galleria Mall. <laughs> if you remember from Robert Patrick, there's actually a really great video that's out right now. It's trending on YouTube lately where Robert Patrick goes back to where they shot the film in Burbank and different areas. And it actually talks about it. And it's amazing oh, really how cool. vivid his memory is. 20 plus years later super I mean, cool that Highly shot is still so amazing of the big rig oh my god it's am- the whole movie is spectacular everything is so beautiful well, why I, haven't we covered that because he's not really so much of a slasher as he is a stabber i don't fucking care <laughs> he stabs her through the eyeball oh and then the guy remember the guy who they use the twins mm. slash action okay we should do that we haven't done a slash action here in a long time no. in fact we've only ever done one of them I mean, we were talking about maybe doing Rambo, so it's getting a little off course, but... We still should. <laughs> Let us know. SlasherSpot at gmail.com. Tell us what you want. Do our market research for us. Next gentleman. So he also wrote T2 and Judge Dredd. Exactly. It, Judge Dredd is Judge fucking Dredd terrible. Is fucking great. You know, not Dredd with <laughs> Carl Urban. Judge Dredd. It's terrible. Don't get it twisted. I love that movie. <laughs> but it, it is, is really terrible. bad. Yes. It is so bad. <laughs> Basically, the one inbred mutant looks just like Goro, but with a tin head. Yeah. But apparently, Sylvester Stallone had some meddling to do in the script in that one. So hmm. it looks great. I think Versace did the costume for Dredd that he wears all of 10 seconds in the whole fucking movie. <laughs> the whole gimmick in the comics is that he never takes it off. I'm calm. I'm calm. <laughs> Sore spot. Yeah, it is. Because I like, look at how great Dread is. I mean, you guys have heard me gush about that movie. That's one of like two movies I've went to the theater and saw alone. The, like, the worst part of that movie is walking out and wanting to talk to everybody. But wasn't it amazing? <laughs> Looking at me like weirdo. I almost pulled a Paul Rubens in the back of some kid's head. I was so excited by that movie. That's a Pee Wee Herman joke. He masturbated in public. Do you want to take the next bit? Yeah. Oh, no. Oh. Brian, why do we like Warren Lewis? We like Warren Lewis because, one, he did Black Rain. Ridley Scott. That's right. Two, despite changes in the interview, he said he would recognize his script from the end result. I think it's important to yeah. come out in support Absolutely. of the, the work because, obviously, there's huge changes. There's a director change. There's a huge tonal change from more horror to more action adventure. And that's evidenced by the music, too, right, which we'll get right. into. It's wow. very proud to be the only action movie, quote unquote, with a Muslim hero. Yeah, and I thought that was really interesting because he talks about it in the interviews and talking about how he's not a necessarily a, quote, prayerful Muslim. But when you look at like other movies, you don't have necessarily Chuck Norris being a prayerful Christian or prayerful Jewish characters. You don't have to necessarily be identified by it. He's not a Muslim who happens to be the 13th warrior. He's the 13th warrior who happens to be Muslim, if that makes more sense. Yeah, absolutely. All right. (sighs) (laughs) Uh, John McTiernan, Michael Crichton, and Ned Dowd did the producing for the film. You might recall Ned Dowd was in Slapshot, which was written by his sister. Have to mention that because I absolutely love that film, and he's great as Ogie Oglethorpe. Music. This is an interesting one. Do you have anything on this, Jim? Yeah, so... Ultimately, the music was done by Jerry Goldsmith. Correct. But he's originally, done everything. he's done everything. We talked about him during Gremlins, Gremlins last week. So. so much so, Brian, you weren't here for that part, but the autocorrect, but you edited it. So you heard me say this. So I'm just going to say it again because I already started the sentence where my autocorrect, if I put in Jerry, the second word is Goldsmith. Yep. That's awesome. <laughs> so the original music was done by, Gra- I don't know how to say it, Graham Ravel. Graham Ravel. So he, he did a complete original score for Eaters of the Dead, 98, 
And then it, the movie was deemed unwatchable by test screenings. And then Crichton took over to reshoot it and, and or certain parts. And he completely rejected his score. In its entirety. There are some themes that are similar, but you can find the original score on YouTube. Here's the thing. It's very accepted. If you want a more diverse musical styling, you go with Ravel. It's got more Arabic influence. It's, it's Actually, it's quite proficient. It's not bad. Even without a visual representation, you could see where it would go in the movie. But Goldsmiths has that triumph that's so good. Like, all of the battle scenes, especially that end one, I mean, it's so good. Yeah. But even if you look, look at Ravel, he, he's done a lot. The Crow, yeah. Street Fighter, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, the movie, From Dust Till Dawn, The Craft, The Saint, The Negotiator, Bride of Chucky, Titan AE, Laura Croft, Tomb Raider, Daredevil, Freddy vs. Jason, and Sin City, to name a few. That's our childhood. He did our childhood. Up the butt. It's just crazy to think that <laughs> Crichton would Crichton would just throw it out. Right? Like, this because, is not good enough for me. Well, what's crazy is Crichton is the guy who wanted the diversity of including Fodlon in his Beowulf recreation. And he was like, nah, fuck it. I don't want that Arabic music in here. Get out of my face with this. Man. Nuts, huh? <laughs> I am so worked up. Sorry, guys. This might be very off-putting for like new listeners, but I just love it. I'm sorry. Hopefully, you can appreciate people with being enthusiastic. I listened to a podcast about God knows what the other day. It was something stupid I had literally no interest in, but it just carried over from the last podcast. And the people were so passionate about it. I was like, sure. It shows how much I cared about the subject matter because I clearly don't even remember what it was. But I was like, <laughs> you're passionate. Good for you. Hopefully, our listeners are the same. And if you really love me being passionate, you should give us Patreon money. I'll get super passionate on that ass. <laughs> Shall we get into nicknames? Dick names. Prick names? Jose Antonio Dominguez Banderas. I didn't know that was his name. Yep. He played. Okay, hold on. Ahmad ibn Fadlan ibn al-Abbas ibn Rashid ibn Hamad. That is his full actual name. So even the, the reason I did that was to show the parallel between Mr. Banderas and Mr. Fadlan. Extra names. You simplify. I would propose the name El Mariachi. I understand if Zorro is appropriate. That was my second choice. But I was going to go with Little Brother. Oh, that's actually pretty good. <laughs> Just okay. I want to say Robert Roger, you guys fucking rules, but I will take Little Brother. So one thing that I thought was kind of adorable in an interview, he compared filming this movie with the Tall Norsemen to filming with the L.A. Lakers because they're so much bigger than he is. <laughs> uh, and then he also talked about being from Andalusia, Spain, which was the last area of Spain to fall from Arab control in the 15th century. So people who are like, oh, yeah, it's like basically doing blackface. It's like, oh, I wouldn't go that far. Genealogy being as such, this is not entirely distinct. I'm not saying it's necessarily appropriate to have a Spaniard be playing you know, uh, an Arab, but this is not an abomination in my opinion. But I'm an ignorant white person, so don't take anything <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> I, I feel like he did a pretty good job, except for his accent. Yeah, it's, it's pretty Spanish, yeah. yeah. Right. I'm just happy he wasn't wearing platform shoes like Tom Cruise or something. <laughs> Is that in his off time or his regular time? <laughs> I, feel like... I feel like Tom Cruise just wears platform shoes Oops. all the time. The actor for Bullvi? Yeah. He talks about it in the interview. He's like, 
you did a pretty good job for being a, a short guy among a bunch of giants. Oh, that's but awesome. <laughs> throwing little digs out there. Honestly, they have a very jovial relationship. I really wonder what filming was like for them. Because I don't think that a lot of the strife came until like reshoots and stuff. So I imagine at the time it was pretty interesting. You know, also somebody nearly died on the set. No big whoop, whatever. So then we have Diane Venora as Queen Vilve. She was in the Jackal Heat and Wolfen. I got she nothing for she her. She doesn't need her. She, yeah, she's, she's hardly even in it. Exactly. So we'll skip I her. was almost going to just call her evil bitch because she offered the knives to the girl saying they will not take any children prisoner. That was crazy. Right. Yeah, I was pretty <laughs> fucked up. I was Fucking like, I'm um, sorry, what? A re- better a, a, a live slave than a dead. Well, actually, I don't know. <laughs> That's Kinda a hard makes one. you wonder what the, we're going to skip. What the Neanderthals or whatever we want to call them. Oh, they would have eaten them alive, though. So they wouldn't they, have been slaves. So then, yeah, better they would have eaten the children alive. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, the chicken fingers. So then we have Vladimir Kulich as Bulif, the leader. I wanted to call him Vigo the Carpathian from Ghostbusters 2 because when he's wearing the armor, he's. Oh, he's totally Vigo. Vigo. He's totally Vigo. Absolutely. Do you know what I'm talking about, Jim? I don't. I Google don't search Vigo oh, the Carpathian. Man. Ghostbusters. Oh, my God, Jim. We got to get you up to speed here, bud. You have 30 years to catch up on on Brian and my schlocky movie obsession. It's all good. I feel like it, I just like felt Chad like shudder. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Right. He looks exactly like Vigo. It was either going to be that or just plain Beowulf, but whatever. I, I defer to your good judgment, my constabularies. So apparently he had just moved to Hollywood and fired his, quote, lazy <laughs> agent. He was so smug about it, too. <laughs> yeah. He fires the agent, and then the agent calls back like a week later, and he's like, hey, there's this movie. You want to read for it? And you know, he reads, and then time passes, and then he actually gets called back to meet with McTiernan himself. Does he hire the agent back? No. You didn't say it. But I assume he had to have in order right? to get that contract. It's like a finder's fee of some sort. I thought he got a new agent. Oh, maybe. And it was the new agent who was like, hey, I have this. Oh, okay. That makes more sense. In that interview, he was just kind of, he had this kind of like jaunty, dismissive attitude. So that makes sense to me. Yeah, it did. But originally, apparently, when he, the studio in Crichton didn't want him. They wanted Stellan Starsgard. And then they end up with this guy. Stellan Skarsgård, who ends up playing Rothgar in 2005's Beowulf and Grindel. Oh, with gotcha. Gerard Butler. Oh, it's a great movie. I two liked years it. before the computer animation one, which is kind of awful and terrifying. Yeah, weird. But also, I was telling Jim that movie fucked up my recollection of Beowulf because I remembered it like the facts of that movie. <laughs> that the dragon is not his <laughs> kid in the original myth. Yeah. But whatever. So he is fluent in Czech, French, English, and Hungarian. And for one month when they were doing the filming, the guys would have to do sword play and horse riding and all this stuff to become like the Vikings. And one of the classes they had to take was Norwegian. But you'll recall that this gentleman played Olaf's son on the X-Files and spoke a little bit of Norwegian, just enough to fake it because our ignorant ass producers were like, okay, you speak Norwegian. And instead of going to class, he went to a bar. Yep. I love him. <laughs> fake it to make it. I love it so much. It reminds me of like telling somebody in their native tongue, I do not speak this language. I am just pretending to get out of saying anything in my language. <laughs> now, he reacted very similarly to Brian to the title change and said, quote, are you kidding me? Going from Eaters of the Dead to the 13th Warrior. So he's on your side. Yeah, buddy. He criticized the editing for losing some of the tension and the, quote, reason, end quote, for the violence, which I thought was very insightful. 
But I think that you only get that through a considerable amount of length. And given that the slasher's attention span is barely 90 minutes, I'm going to have to veto you there, Vigo. Yeah, when I saw the runtime last night, it was pretty rough, but made it through it. Soldiered on. Something like that. Brian ranged up. <laughs> then we have Dennis Storkoy as Virger, Herger, the joyous. I wanted to call him Rosetta Stone because he's the translator boy. Hey. I almost called him Goatee Boy, but then <laughs> it just made sense because he translates. I was just going to call him Old Man. Oh, but there's so many old men within the yeah, group that I'm like, he's not even the oldest dude there. It wouldn't make sense. So he was actually almost died when they did the underwater stunts and Antonio Banderas in real life saved his life. Funny thing about that scene. Did any of you guys actually hold your breath during that scene? Every single time. Every single time. Up top. Every time somebody holds their breath yep, in the movie, I, you have I to have do to. Do you do it? I didn't do it for this one, but do you I do, do normally it? do it. Yeah. See, I, just, I feel like a good portion of these movies, I'm dead. <laughs> oh, yeah, all the time. <laughs> Especially when you consider that when they go under the water, it's in Canada. And when they come up out of the water, it's in Santa Monica. <laughs> yeah. Literally, they, they didn't have time to film them breaching the water. So they had to do reshoots. Oh, no. In LA. That's crazy. So if you imagine how long you'd be having to hold your breath for a period of perhaps months. Yeah, not good. But speaking of him almost dying. When Banderas in the interview, he's talking about it. It's pretty like that got me going. Just hearing him recounting it. Oh, it's oh, heroin. It got, it it's, got you going. It's got huh, me Jim? going. Yeah, yeah. Buddy. Banderas yeah. swimming through he, that water. Him, he was uh, he was Zorro in the gay blade. This <laughs> 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 is a very fun movie. But, Have you uh, seen it? Didn't take you. Didn't take you for a gay blade type of man. But it's very good. <laughs> Keep going, Jim. Sorry. <laughs> so. I guess they, they both, because they both dive in at the same time, and they actually dived and swam through it at the same time in like one cut. They didn't just film them diving down and then swimming through it. And Banderas explained it as they have a bunch of pipes coming out of the rocks like that you can see through and like st- space for the camera and stuff, so it's easy to get lost. It's all fake rocks. And stuff. It's all fake rocks just on a, on a set. But Banderas comes up, and they're kind of like, oh, okay, and then they, they're like, where's, where's Herger? Like, where is he? And they're like... Uh, we don't know. Oh no, he didn't come up. And so Banderas sticks his hand under there and grabs his it junk, and the, yeah, pulls him out by the balls. There we go. But he, he, <laughs> so Herger, he, the actor grabs onto him and he pulls him up, and he says he was just like absolutely pale, like he was like another couple seconds, and he was probably wow, out. that's crazy. It's awesome. I mean, it's awesome to hear that like a legitimate story of somebody being good. And things just working out okay. One thing I wanted to touch on, this actor was in a film called Kampen Omp Tuntkdavaten, which is basically the same events as a book that I read called The Winter Fortress. I'm a huge fan of it. If you like World War II history, it is so fucking intense. I remember reading and like my eyes were bleeding. I was so tired, but I had to keep going because it is such a harrowing, amazing What was story. it called? The Winter Fortress. It is amazing. If you want to borrow it, you can, or you can get your own copy because you'll love it. I guarantee it. If you, here's a challenge. If you buy a copy of the Winter Fortress and you don't like it, you can fuck off. (laughs) 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 Sorry, guys. (laughs) Then we have Omar Sharif as Mikitsikadikidik. And I wanted to call him Duolingo because Rosetta Stone was taken. (laughs) (laughs) Which one was this guy? 
He's the old, the old man. man. He's the old man in the beginning. Yeah. Jim, okay. tell, tell the people the story about Antonio Banderas and his idol. Oh, yeah. So, so Sharif was in, in Lawrence of Arabia. With Peter O'Toole, with Peter who was in Phantoms. Okay. So they're on the camels. They, they're all in their, their traditional you know, Arab garb for the desert. And they're riding side by side. And they actually, the director swapped their their garbs because used to be black Sharif, and white and then sorry yes sharif wore wore black in in uh, lawrence of arabia and then in this one he switches so that banderas okay. wore the black and sharif wore the white but so and banderas is like geeking out because he watched lawrence of arabia as a kid and this is a famous actor and all this stuff and, and sharif notices it obviously and so he you know he, he kind of cheeses uh, up and he leans forward and goes to Agrabah. Oh, that's cool. Banderas in the interview is like, he looks like a little kid. That's <laughs> He's like, so happy. That's like in Aladdin, right? Yeah. yeah. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> it's I also gotcha. Lord's Arabia. Well, uh, people are like, remember <laughs> that, that big thing where 90% of Trump supporters are, are in favor of blowing up the fictional state of Agrabah. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Is that a thing? It is. I've oh, read that so boy. many times. <laughs> but I think it's a really cool story. It's very sad in talking about him. You know, this is a guy who had a rich history. He was Egyptian-born, Syrian, Lebanese. He was Dr. Zhivago. And this guy's a very established actor. And this movie made him temporarily quit acting for a period of about three years. He talked about it being, quote, very humiliating. And he was, quote, really sick. Do you think it's from all the reshooting? I don't think that he was necessarily involved in a lot of it. I think some of his acting was just cut entirely when you look at Michael Crichton's draft. Wow. So, I mean, that's the thing. Think about 24 minutes of the movie being cut out. It's a significant chunk. And that's I'm sure a lot of, that's probably a lot of dialogue. Yeah. And I think that that's, I mean, he clearly wasn't riding horse. Well, he was riding horse, but he's not like gallivanting around and saving naked boys running through the forest. He was very much in a docile talking head sense. kind of role. Yeah. I, he did end up returning to acting. And I think that he's very good in this role. Next, we have Anders T. Anderson as Wigliff, the king's son. I wanted to call him Prince Poopy Pants and move on. Yeah, this totally reminded me of Braveheart, right? So. Where you have the king and then you have the jealous son and he's jealous of fucking crazy Gibson, right? What's his name in that movie? I don't know. I forget. Anyways, but it's kind of like the same plot line, right? Exactly. Okay. And then we go to Richard Bremer, who was scaled the superstitious. I wanted to call him Voldemort. Why? He played he who must not be named in Harry Potter and the philosopher slash sorcerer's stone. Did you know that? I didn't know that. IMDb is a wonderful tool. <laughs> That's he pretty cool. Also in Beowulf Return to the Shieldlands, Les Mis. He's playing an unnamed character in that Rise to Skywalker bullshit. And <laughs> we can all agree the crown achievement of his career. He was in Shanghai Nights. Whoa. 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 <laughs> Don't you ever touch a Chinese man's radio. Oh, man. <laughs> did you just go there? I did. <laughs> Tony Curran as Weath, the musician. I wanted to call him Mick Ginger. <laughs> I like it. Why not? I didn't have much. Why not? Nobody he's will get mad a, about he's that. He's been in a lot of things. On a crazy amount. You want to go through the yeah, list? Yeah, man. Ray Donovan, Outlaw King, WoW Game, Netflix, Voltron, Netflix's Daredevil, there's a few other uh, exclusives. I think he was in Thor, Dark World, Underworld, Evolution, Blade 2, uh, Gladiator. I feel like a lot of these, he's almost typecast, right? Yep. It seems like within these films, he's the same type of character. But it works. Super good. I mean, 
like I said, he probably has the best career of anybody else, whatever, including Antonio Banderas at this point. Whatever gives you work. Yeah, he wasn't in X versus Sever, so I think he's in a pretty good shit. Isn't, didn't Antonio Banderas just come out with something recently, like a next Netflix exclusive? He's done or, a few like that, yeah. Yeah, okay. I haven't watched him, though. I just yeah. like to think of him in Zorro and this. And that's I feel like oh, he's like a fashion too. designer or like he's like a famous artist in like a new movie that he just came out. Cool. Anything? Anybody? No? Nothing? No. Yeah. Then we have Misha Hauserman as the archer. The dude with the side oh, he, ponytail the old, yeah, thing. Yeah, the side ponytail. He reminds me of Kevin Nash. Done. Doesn't he look like yep. Kevin Nash? Okay. Maybe Diesel. Just me. Right, exactly. Neil Moffin as Ronith the rider. See, he was kind of the scout. Yeah. So okay. he, he was the one we wanted to call Lionheart because of the mullet, right? Oh, that's a sweet mullet. The Jean-Claude Van Damme. Jean-Claude Van Damme. Where he catches a snake. And we have... Jim was smart and made a photo key legend to this so we know what's going on because these guys' names just disappear. They all kind of blend together. Oh, for sure. All white people look alike. Wow. I think we have Asbjorn, Abjorn Reese as Halga. Halga the Wise. I don't really know anything about him. Yeah. Do we know anything about any of these other... He, he was the older guy with like the double braids. Hippie they long stockings. They don't all have double braids. What's Hippie long stockings. Yep, that makes sense. Double braids. Clive Russell as Helfain, the fat. He wasn't that fat. None no. of these guys are very fat. No. If he was that fat, I'd call him Volstag after Thor. See, when I see all of these guys and all of their individual tributes, it reminds me of The Hobbit. Oh, I can tell all it, yeah. of them. And that guy, the fat guy in The Hobbit, one of the dwarfs, totally is fat. And that makes sense. Yeah, and this he's... He's still athletic. He could still probably bench me, and that makes me feel sad. <laughs> I just feel sad and fat, if I'm being honest. So then you have Sven Wolter as King Hrothgar. Anything for him? What's the guy who worm tongue was ear fucking in the Lord of the Rings series? Oh, yeah. Okay. I don't know. I don't know. I made my reference. I'm good. I don't yeah. need to actually give him a name because he doesn't play a huge role. He's in the first half and then nothing in the second half. Do we need to go on with any of these other motherfuckers? The only one I'll talk about is that Susan Willis originally played the Wendell mother. Or excuse me. Susan Willis ended up playing the Wendell mother, whereas IMDb credits Kristen Cloak at... <sighs> other way around. Exactly. I was right the first time. Remember when I said it the right the first time? <laughs> Susan Willis was the Wendell mother. But Kristen Cloak played her. The credit goes to Susan Willis because she was the actress in the original version. She was an old woman. And Michael Crichton, when he took over, was like, hey, um, how about the six foot 19 guy doesn't kill an old lady? And that's why they made her young. So even the guy who wrote the source material was like, yeah, visually, this doesn't work. Even in the book, just like the, the structure of this, though, you know, you have the pagan female the matriarchy. She's clearly the head of it, but he's still new to give the man-on-man bloody death scene. And okay. I think that's a very important visual cue in this. And that's pretty much all I got. Yeah. I think we're ready to go into recapitation. Brian, would you like to? I'll take a stab at it, I guess. <laughs> How about a slash at it? Yeah, no. <laughs> I'll give a hack. <laughs> so you have an Arab diplomat. I want to say diplomat. That's Is fine. he a diplomat? Sure. An, an Arab diplomat who apparently... I say apparently because they they get very minimal amount of detail on what actually happens to him. But apparently he falls in love with this dude's chick and he banishes him and says, you need to become some dignitary to, I guess, translate the words of other people. 
and he comes across Norsemen who then have a child come up to them and say, hey, we, our village is being taken over by all of these creatures. Can you please come help us? They go to a village. They find out that there are creatures that come with the mist. They rip off people's heads. It's really fucking cool. They teach the people how to fight. They put up defenses. They end up putting on a big war, I guess. And I don't know. Big war? That doesn't make sense. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's not a little war. Well, actually, it is because it's just one village. So, yeah, little. It's a, it's a respectable kerfuffle. <laughs> they they put on a little kerfuffle, a resistance, I guess you can there call it. Kerfuffle against... de resistance. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, for those of you who watch our weekly warm-ups, you know that we have Slashers shirts available. We're doing a run of just our logo. Kerfuffle resistance. Like kerfuffle de resistance. It could be a great second run of shirts. Just throwing that out there. Right. right. They, they put on a, a valiant effort. They end up killing the queen bitch. And everybody lives happily ever after. The end. The end. Like three of them live happily ever yeah, after. Except, yeah. except for the guys who die. <laughs> but the some, of, who- some of them lose their heads. <laughs> uh, it's like a pun that Arnold Schwarzenegger would say. Like, don't you lose your head. <laughs> Which the fact that he's not in this movie is kind of a letdown. Mm. I mean, they spent a trillion dollars on it anyway. Why the fuck isn't he? In the is movie? this before or after he was talking about coming on stage? <laughs> you know uh, what I'm talking about, I do. right? It's, it's a juicy little <laughs> diatribe he goes on. So as we had mentioned, this film set in, if it's based on Fadlan's actual life, it would have been 921 AD. For those of you who are trying to contextualize, the Viking Age classically is classified as 793 AD to 1066 AD. So this is right so in that kind of sweet spot of the middle. Leaning towards the end, but yeah. Well, actually, I guess right in the middle. Yeah. Maybe. Basically. Know. Who knows? I was right. Maybe not. Whatever. <laughs> I like the part where I was right first. <laughs> Math. Jim, shall we? All right. So the the movie starts by with Fadlan describing how he was a poet and his life was easy and how he met a woman that belonged to another man. And basically, he got exiled from the kingdom. But exiled is kind of rough because they basically made him an ambassador to another kingdom. I wish I could get exiled like that. (laughs) Fuck, man. Yeah, to a place where the mead flows like wine and the swallows (laughs) of Capistrano. He's like, I can't can't drink fermented grapes. They're like, it's honey, bitch. Yeah, they they actually go into great detail about that in the book because at first he hates it, but then he's like, oh, okay, this isn't so bad. Yeah, he (laughs) he spends, in the movie, it was like super short at the end. Yeah. But then he he was like, Oh, there's some more mead and some more mead. Yep. <laughs> hey, give me that mead. I'm going to fuck this chick. I'm yeah. going to fuck that chick. He definitely becomes a full on Viking. Oh, in that man. Book. See, gonna... that's why I feel like. Me... Never mind. We've <laughs> talked about this. Brian believes that he would be a Viking, but the only problem is he's too fucking nice. I, you're not yeah, rapey enough. The whole rapey thing, maybe not for me. The, one of the very interesting things that a lot of Viking historians will talk about is the consent factor for women uh, in a lot of circumstances. Wait, no, it's weird. <laughs> Not even going to go nope. there. <laughs> so there is a slight anachronism I have to mention. The woman who he's in love with, she's clearly a whore because she's her head garb is not opaque. You can see through her face. It's like throwing your vagina in his face. I mean, we're going to cut this part not too. Not mad at it. <laughs> Cutting this part too. <laughs> so as he's being exiled, the guy comes up yelling, the Tartars are coming, blah, blah, blah. Well, the Tartars were actually 200 years after the movie, so I'm going to have to give it a little check mark on the naughty column for that. But 
we're still on a good run. So they're being chased by the Tartars that don't exist yet. And they stop at a river and the the bandits, they stop coming after them because there's a, a boat coming down the river. And, it's and a, they have fish sticks that they will dip into the Tartars. <laughs> I was going to say, why are we not calling them Tartar sauce? Yeah, well, we are now. <laughs> They're only in this part of the movie, unfortunately. Yeah, well. So it's a, a Viking boat. They refer to them as the Northmen. Which, have you watched the show Norsemen? It pretty is good. so good. First hmm. season is truly incredible. It's not like Vikings. It's not real. It's a parody show. It's fucking hysterical. Nice. It, it, honestly, I have not belly laughed that hard at a show since Toast of London was current. I haven't seen Vikings. Is it worth watching? Has anybody seen it? It's just really long. It, it's beautiful. The app, the scenery and everything are it's so good. That show is on par with this movie in terms of visual cues and production design and everything. But the problem is it's just I can sit down and watch this hour and a half movie. No problem. I can't do that every week. So that's why I don't watch Vikings very consistently. Okay. So Fadlan is traveling with Sharif this whole time. Sharif don't like it. And they come across after seeing the boat. Sorry, goddammit. He snapped his fingers because he loves to hate me. So they come. He's so mad. So after they see the boat. They go around the corner and they see the Northmen camp and Fadan and Sharif are coming into the camp and they're basically just walk right into their building and there's like a feast going on. They're partying and they're trying to talk to people and it's not working. So Sharif tries Greek. Greek doesn't work. Tries Latin. And one of the guys replies in Latin because apparently he knows Latin from coming south or whatever. And they learn that. They want. They ask to talk to the king. They says the king is in another another tent and he's not going to speak to you. That's because he's dead. It's pretty brutal. I like it. I like how dismissive it is because it's cheeky. He's like, like, oh, oh yeah. whatever. Well, I'd love to, except for the fact he's dead. You big dumb idiot. <laughs> it would have been great if you'd been like, you want to talk to him? Here he is. Just like lift up a head. <laughs> say he, like, he does the ice say cream hello. man with the back. yeah. Hi. Put, put him on I'm a stick. <laughs> yeah, it'd be so good. So we talked about this earlier about the manuscript that this is based off of is talks a lot about burial rituals that they go through a lot in the book too is that it's a celebration of him right celebration of life right and it's not a sad thing more so as which i which is i feel like something that people are now actually kind of it's coming full cycle or it's full, full circle thing. it's you're not you're not mourning someone's death but you're celebrating their life yeah we've done celebrations of life for all members of my family that have died in the past even over a decade yeah, it's really cool. Nobody wears black anymore. Everybody just like wears colors, and it's it's really neat. If I may, I know it's a weird variance, but especially if you're in a period of like mourning and trying to figure out like the kind of the woes and grief, a song that's really helped me in the past, there's a band called Love, and they have a song called Everybody's Gotta Live. I highly recommend it, like on a weird, somber note. Like if you're dealing with like the, the pain of loss, it's a very beautiful and simplistic way of establishing like, the, literally, the lyric is everybody's got to live and everybody's got to die. Everybody better try to have a good time. I think you know the reason why. So enjoy that. And Jim, keep going because I just got sentimental, which is weird. <laughs> uh, a butt fucking. Oh, ha, ha, ha. I'm Jake. I'm an idiot. I say dumb things all the time in a really loud voice. Back to normal. Is that good? Okay, good. <laughs> Jim's like, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> this is the last time I bring you coffee. Moving on. Yeah, right? <laughs> I'm all happed up on Mountain Dew. So this is where we meet Bullvi, so Beowulf, who requests a song from Falan. As he's reciting 
the song. Bullvie kills a man. Who's who's going to try and kill him? Yeah. Who's going to try totally to kill him? Slices his stomach like wide open. It's pretty fucking sweet. Vagina chest. Yeah. And then we go from there to the idea that there's a new king now. So the old king can be burned. And we see the burial ritual. Did you guys the notice the girl? Like, ah, I'm going to die with him. That's cool. In the book, it's way cooler. Yeah. I don't know about cooler. <laughs> I was like, cooler? Because this, like- this is what Fadlon did in real life. This yeah. is why people remember him. Because after this manuscript, no mention of him in history. Okay. He's not like some mythological creature. He's not Johnny Appleseed going around. After this, it's done. So this is why he's an important figure. And I think they do a really good job of making it important. So in the book, the king dies. They leave his body in the cold for 10 days. He, uh, Fadlon's talking about, like, this is... Just that is a whole new world because, you know, where he's from, the heat, you'd have to bury a body right away. Otherwise, it would stink and be terrible. But the cold keeps it preserved aside from some bloating. So they put him on a funeral pyre with the boat and all of his possessions. So it's very Egyptian until this point. Right. The girl then goes and gets come into by all of his homies. Whoa. Because male ejaculate is true. That's cool, Jim. <laughs> It's it's interesting. Well, obviously they cut out this part, but it's important to note because I'm just kidding. The uh, the creamy man sauce is truly perceived to be life and vitality. So by coming into her, the perception in their minds is not lurid or gross. It's they say like when you get to We're my giving lord, some of our life force back to you to give to him. So they say when you get to your lord, tell him we did this for him. Which is a weird thing to say when you're getting your dick wet. But that's what they say. And so then she, they put a noose around her neck and stab her. And they pound on these drums so you can't hear if she's making any torturous sounds throughout this whole thing. And then they put her on the pyre and she burns and dies with him. But here's the kicker. They don't just choose her. She volunteers. Yes. That's what I'm saying. People are consenting. Out of the love for her king, she volunteers to go to Valhalla with him. I guess that all makes it all right. Interesting, right? <laughs> well, I mean, if that's what you want to do, it might be like a weird cultural thing. I'm like, but- maybe I wasn't a Viking. <laughs> <laughs> I probably was. I would say so. You would come into some chick and say it was for me if I died, right? Only if I was the first. No. <laughs> Actually, very interesting. I read a paper once that pontificated the reason that male penises have a mushroom tip as opposed to the penises of other species was actually because it was a scoop meant to scoop out the competitor's sperm. I have heard that too. Dude, what <laughs> happened to us? We were, isn't it weird to think that we were once children, like innocent children, and we're just like, nah! Science is interesting. Oh, wait, what? Science teaches you about dick spoons? Okay. <laughs> dick spoons, also an idea for a shirt. Just saying. <laughs> oh, geez. Continuing on. <laughs> Soldiering on. So they burn him. And then the next morning, Fadlon walk, walks out of his tent and he, there's a boy standing on the bow of a boat. Mm-hmm. And they're just standing there. And we find out that he asked why, why is that kid sitting there? And say they don't know if the boy is real or not. He has to stand there and let himself be known. So he's not. we know he's not part of the mist. That's actually pretty cool. In the book, when they do it, it's very interesting. When they the people actually come, because Buleff does this. And Wait, they, we're not talking about different... We're talking about another company. This is truly (laughs) to ingress and egress, if you will, not to ejaculate. But when they actually do arrive, people act as though, oh, it's so great to see you. They disregard the fact they've been sitting on a boat for the day. 
But this is your first hint that the mist is truly something that is like feared and reviled in this culture because it means something very different because Fadlan is very aware that these are seafaring men. So he initially thinks that the mist is a fear in terms of navigation. And they're like, no, it is not. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with what comes out of the mist. So this is a super cool like little hint. And if you're willing to be patient, it's a cool part of the movie. But I could see if you just wanted to see hacky slashy time and watch yeah. basically the visual representation <laughs> of Dynasty Warriors, this isn't your bag. But I love it. Skip the first half. Uh, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't be offended <laughs> if anybody did. So inside, we see uh, one of the rituals that the Northmen have. They're passing around a bowl oh, and they're the washing their face and spitting into it and then passing it That's passing so it on yeah and then so the boy comes in we find out that he's a messenger he's wolfgar he's the son of a rothgar and he's come for help his father's kingdom is under attack from it an evil that has no name so bolivai calls for the angel of death who's basically an oracle as old the lady comes she throws out all these bones on the floor yeah you're not talking dominoes either no. <laughs> Lay down them bones. So she calls for men numbering 13, the number of the their months, to come forward. And 12 come forward. And it's a really cool scene where the, the music in this part is very yeah. triumphant. And, yep. and 12 people come forward. I like What I really like about this is how completely different each and every one of them are. Like you can totally tell like each one of them. And has my a, axe. Right. It's something <laughs> similar. I love it. I'm not even being facetious. I really enjoy the yeah. idea. Just like the woman, these are people who are willing. This is Valhalla. Like this is this really cool. Like the most exciting thing to me is this idea of life and death and duty. And right. Well, and it it also just emphasizes what's so different between the Norse kind of way of life compared to everybody else. Whereas it seems so harsh, and yeah. you see people die, and they're like, "Why are you mourning, dude?" He's going, he's in Valhalla. He's going to be fine. And to your point, we see Fadlan's face during this. He's like, wow, this is like crazy. Look at all these people stepping up. Like, this is crazy. And then, and then you get to 13 and then it gets quiet and everybody's just staring at him. <laughs> and if you watch in the movie, they use a dark bone to represent him to show that he is supposed to be an outsider. In the book, they just talk about it. She just says so. And one of the things that's interesting, Jim, did you pick up on this because you've read it in Eaters of the Dead? the leader of the Vengal, it's an old woman. Right. It's basically showing a parallel between them and our Vikings. Our Vikings have the angel of death, who's an old woman, who's a soothsayer, who basically dictates what's happening. And they are beholden to her very much the same as they are. So here you have this creation of these, where it's like this perverse thing where they see the statue, they spit on the statue of the maternal figure, and they're all against it. But in truth, they're very much the same. Very similar. Yeah. I really, really love that. It's touched on in the movie, but I think it's way cooler in the book. So the 13th man must be no Northman they talk about. And so it's Ibn Fadlan. And then it comes to the next morning and they're all getting ready to go. And Fadlan's getting on his horse. And this is where you see the size discrepancy between the 12 Northmen and Fadlan, who is basically just tiny. It's like a child, basically. Yeah, the Lakers and the Laker girl. <laughs> <laughs> so he's getting on his horse and the Vikings are are like barking at the horse. And they say only calling an, it basically a dog. Right? Only an yeah. Arab would be a dog to war. Which is what's really cool about that is when he kind of shows him up and he's like, well, fuck you. Check this out. Check how fast I can go. It was really, what I could do. It was really silly. And you know what yeah. I mean? Like it kind of a, a silly slapstick way of 
explaining I'm a kind of a boss on a horse, but it, I mean, it works. And I really like how he jumps over to the guy's horse and knocks him off and he gets like a face full of mud and he doesn't even get mad. He just like fucking smiles and laughs. It's that camaraderie. And I don't know. I really like their, the dynamic of their friendship. It, it totally sets it up too. They're that dynamic and how he's, they're okay with this gamesmanship jostling. Yeah. Yeah. It shows them traveling. Right. And then this is where you have that scene where it has him studying their language. And I think it's, it's really neat because you have to have some way of expanding how I'm going from, Hey, here is me not knowing a thing of what they're saying and everything has to be translated because this would be really fucking tedious it would. to all of a sudden. Now I know what's going on. That's the difference where you have a visual medium. It doesn't make sense to do anything else. Right. Absolutely. And it totally works. And I don't know why I'm going to be comparing that. Well, Die Hard, for instance, in Die Hard, the one where the Nakatomi Tower, they're all Germans, but they all speak English. You're like, what? No, come on, dude. They would all be talking to each other in German and John McClane would be bumbling around like I have no idea who the fuck's talking and what's going on, right? Yeah, for visual storytelling, it doesn't make sense to have that tedium, so you just get it done. Yep. Yep. The meme of that chick where she's like, there's math figures floating in front of her face. Yeah. She's like calculating things. <laughs> like, it's basically him right there. Yeah. <laughs> or Alan from The Hangover when he's counting cards. <laughs> he does what everybody who you know, speaks multiple languages dreams of. They hear, hear people over talking about his mother. And then he, he busts out their language and he says, my mother was a pure woman from a noble family and I, at least, know who my family is, you pig-eating son of a whore. <laughs> so, I miss it. It's so good. Which is great because I I know how to understand Spanish while I cannot speak it. So I vividly remember being the manager of an EB Games and having a guy call me some very colorful names. And I said, oh, you know I understand Spanish. He goes, wait, what? I was like, I know what you just said about me. And he said, what? And then we had a very prim and proper conversation thereafter. <laughs> I'm so sure. Yeah, no, it was. He was very well behaved. Oh, okay. And he waddled his buns out of my store. So the next morning, Bolvai asks Fadan if he could draw sounds. And so he draws in the dirt. There's only one God and Muhammad is his prophet. And Bolvai just kind of walks away. This is very important. And a lot of people, like I said, were basically teasing the movie and saying, oh, it doesn't make sense. Who because their Scandinavian writing can go as far back as 2nd century AD. And basically, it's runes on stone. Because you're not going to be putting on leather workings or stuff like that. It's not going to stay very well. And so, between the year 800 and 1050 AD, there began to be a division between Eastern Norse and Western Norse. Eastern ends up becoming like Swedish, Danish. And then Western becomes like Icelandic and Norn. And so this is what I mean. The complexity of the communities that you're dealing with, the language, the written language, people are aware of it, but every language is different. To transcribe something is different. And so this is a very big olive branch that I've seen people kind of besmirch online. And I'm like, no, this is actually a cool thing to me. Am I wrong? No, super. Well, this is one of the scenes I hadn't seen the movie in a while. It's been years. And this is one of the, the scenes that stood out to me. Like, yeah. I could recite it. It, it for whatever reason. But it is like a big olive branch and it, and it, it shows Bolvi opening up to somebody who is completely foreign to him. Exactly. And it shows Ivan or Fadlan capitulating. There has to be some sort of relationship between the head dude and the 13th warrior. Yeah. Right. They have to establish something. So this is a nice creative way of doing that. Especially foreshadowing. It makes the, it means so much more when he's gone. Right. Otherwise he's not his leader. Is it a leader thing to do? Like, you know, look at like, 
it might be weird. Christ washing the feet of his followers. Right. It's basically that kind of, you know, like you use the word capitulate. It's a beautiful word. I'm going to steal it from you. Thank you very much. In Scrabble or stack words, I just take it from, what's it called? Words up, upwards? Upwards. It, it definitely makes sense also because you're not really sure what you're going into. You don't know if this person's going to be the person in between you and some creature. Yeah. So you want them to be on your side and you have to gain some sort of favor. And it also shows that Bovai, he doesn't see him as just some tag along annoyance or yeah. something that's going to get in the way. It's, you know, somebody that he's going to have to have a trust in and, and depend upon in some way. And I don't know if the movie does a, a really good job. This He doesn't just like wake up the next morning and go, hey, look what I did. This is sh- meant to show like weeks in between him learning right. it and him doing it. So it's a huge thing that he's dwelt on for a while, which I think is important. So then what happens, Jim? So we cut to a boat on a stormy sea. And I love this because the, the Vikings are just laughing ah! and loving it. <laughs> it's so good. And love it's it. actually super brief. It, it was like probably like 10, 15 seconds yep. in the movie. In the book, it's they talk about the sea monsters, which are whales. Are whales? Yep. Oh, that's cool. And, and then, then it breaks the fourth wall of the book to say, "Oh, well, Fodlon would likely have known what a whale was." So his narration here is not necessarily credible because he's trying to make a story, right? So it even kind of says like, "Ah, even this, you know, we we've stripped down Beowulf, but it could even possibly be stripped down even more." But what I like is the you know sea monster gives credence later on when you have the bear man, where he's like, "Wait, what is this?" I like the idea that he thinks it's a sea monster, personally. Lends to more mysticism we talked about earlier. Even if it is debunked, it still has the allure. Right. So we go... uh, And in the book, they stop multiple places that have been destroyed by the bear people. And you find the statues multiple places. Where in this, they consolidated that one area, which I think is very important. When I first saw the statue, I thought it was bear shit. (laughs) I could totally see that. (laughs) A lump, a turd! (laughs) My God, it's petrified. (laughs) At first, I was afraid. They were I was all, petrified. Like, especially, I mean, it made sense when he picked it up and they all like looked disgusted. And they he, spit like, on it. Threw yeah. it. And One thing like, that's interesting. Oh, they really hate bear shit right now. So Higlak, who spits on it, and Ragnar, who picks it up at the end of his sword, are the first two to die. And it shows mm-hmm. the bear man watching from the forest. That Ooh. is very intentional. Oh, that's interesting. Super I didn't even cool. think about that. Yep. I didn't think that on my own. I actually read it online. So I had to admit it. I wish I was clever enough to have observed that. So they get to the village, right? They get to the village. There are people. They go to the YMCA. It, it, then it, what happens? It definitely <laughs> reminds me of Lord of the Rings, though. Oh, right? Yeah. When they get to the village and you have that evil dude whispering into the king's He's ear. He's tongue. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So they happen to notice there aren't any defenses. Where the hell are all the men? There's what they say something about between a child and a man between a child age and 50 or something. Yep. We don't really, what is it? 15 and 50. There's nobody. 15 to 50. There's nobody. And the only people who are there are the king's son's friends. So that giant redheaded dude who gets ganked, he's a homie. So he's done the uh, what is the, the old Donnie Tramp? Oh, I can't go into the military. I'm being deferred. <laughs> Sorry about it. I'm gonna dig a ditch. So Bulvai meets with Rothgar and basically gets in his ear. He's like, "What troubles this place?" Very much like Lord of the Rings. Oh yeah, right. Theoden and Wormtongue. So he asks him that, and then they go outside, and the thirteen are talking, and they think that Rothgar is crazy. He's talking about myths and how they haven't seen it in. A long time. Yeah. Something like a hundred years. Yeah. Something like that. Which is interesting because, you know, talking about oral traditions, these people don't even have written language, much less the people in the caves. Yep. But I, I mean, I love it all. Sorry. And so at this point, Fadlan sees a child running in the distance and they ride out to meet him. The, it's a boy. He's covered in blood. 
and there's a woman with them. Yeah. She says there's a farm set up the glen, and so she leads them to it. And this is where they find all the bodies hanging. The statue. The, the, they find the statue. This is that scene in Predator too. You know what I'm saying? Yep. There we go. Absolutely. And again, I I want to bring this up. I found it really funny that he sees all these bodies being gnawed on, heads missing. That doesn't gross him out. It's just the the arm that falls off the side of the table, and he's like, "Oh, nope." That's it. I'm mad at it. <laughs> then they find the statue, right? That's where they find the statue. They first. find the statue, yeah. Spitty and sorty. Everybody spits on it and they talk about, okay, well, don't they actually mention the name? And then they all they just do. say, like, don't say, don't that say it because it makes it real. Yep. Right. They said, uh, it is said they eat the dead. They're not men, they're Wendell. And they happen to notice that they were being watched the entire time. So this that's after. So they ride out right. from there and they're, they're kind of on like the, the slopes. And they are kind of looking to like one ridge on the one side and you see the deer running out and you see the other ridge on the other side and something else is running out. This is where Lionheart's like, we've been watching this whole time. Yeah. And Fadlan puts his, it covers his face. Like it co- covers <laughs> he's like, dude, take, take your hand Let off. Let me take your- a gander over here. Yeah. yeah. He's that guy in World War II yeah. that's smoking a cigarette. Yeah. And you're like, really? Or, <laughs> you, you know, when your wife and your people watching in the mall and you're like, don't look, but there's Joe Pesci oh, with no. a mohawk. And she's like, what? You're like, God damn it. <laughs> and she sees the withered old crust punk and she's like, I don't know what that means. Or if we happen to see that one person from the office and we're like, hey, look, it's so-and-so from the office. Don't make a big deal about it. <laughs> My wife's like, is it? I'm like, yes. <laughs> Next, they go back to the place and in they, they stay in the hall and this is meant to recreate the scene in Beowulf where they're staying in the hall Beowulf completely strips down and gets into his naked britches and then they wait for Grendel to come. In this, because they know they've been tracked, they know they're going to go in the central hub. They're going to like isolate the guys to one area. Then they rip off the arm of the Vendel. This is where you have Fadlon gets hit in the face and flies across the room and hits the wall. He pulls a Bilbo Baggins from Lord of the Rings. He just gets dismatched or uh, dismerged, dispatched. That's the word. Dispatched. Doesn't come back. And in the book, they hang the arm just like Beowulf. Kind of glad they didn't go that heavy in this one. But they talk about, you know, they lose the two guys, but then all the guys they killed, I I felled at least three of them, they get dragged off. It's, It's really neat how they don't show them get dragged off. But and so that still leaves the mysticism yep. about what's going on. I have no idea where the fuck these bodies are. We killed a bunch of them. I must have killed two or three. Where the fuck did they go? And I think that's really neat to see that the people that they're fighting, you don't of course you don't know that they're fighting people, but there's a reason they're doing this, right? right? They don't actually go out and say it, but I mean, I could imagine it's probably because they're eating their own dead. Well, it's almost like they're cultivating these people as like cattle, right? Because when they draw the line in the sand and like, we're going to fight back, it's like when Thor's talking about in the Avengers, they're like, you've just told everybody you're able to engage in a whole new degree of warfare because then the glowworm comes. As opposed to up until then, they were just picking off people, taking right. whatever they wanted. And now they have to have a war. It's like in Hook. We're going to have a war. Shmee. Shmee. Is this a part after they... 
Shmi. I feel like after they have their initial fight is when they're like, okay, well, we need to establish some sort of defense. So we're going to start having this, let's get down to biz. I had that in to my mind. Right. I had that. The I had that in my mind while they were like chopping these like wooden spikes and, you know, re- <laughs> Please but make- you can bet before you threw. It's on my like top five songs <laughs> from this year. I have a 19 month old. Fuck off. Don't judge well, me. Well, they're basically reinforcing the the fortress, right? Yeah. And that's when you start seeing In the book it's even doper though because they're digging this shallow ass little moat and Fodlon's like this is dumb. That's not going to do anything. But what they do is they fill it with water so you can't see these little spikes. So you know there's a spikes on the wall. So the people like the cavemen come up to the wall thinking that they're going to just be able to climb just, up it. And it's full of spikes. Stabs them up through the butthole. That's super smart. Reminds yep. me of the Predator. Yeah. Well, which is directed by the same guy. <laughs> I like it. Mm. Yeah. So then you have Fedlon trying to chop at the wood. Right. And he's like, I can't fucking swing at this. You guys are giants. I can't swing any of your swords. And then you have the cheesy part where he's like, where is an ironsmith? Blah, blah, blah. I'm going to change this into a scimitar. Which is anachronistic. It's not good forging, but I love it. I like that. It's like, all right, I can't do what you're doing, but on my terms, I'm a damn good whatever I am. It's fun. I like it. Could you guys also possibly see Jean-Claude Van Damme portraying this role? Like, if they didn't get Antonio Banderas, they would have gotten Jean-Claude Van Damme. I could, and I could he could see do, like, a bunch of splits. They had him play Guile. So, I'm really... <laughs> you can have him do basically anything. But I would love to see this movie remade with Rami Malek. Like, I think that could be, hey, that'd be kind uh, of so yeah. cool. But, you know, what do I know? So, we talked about him turning the sword into a, a scimitar. Scimitar. How, did, how is that pronounced? Scimitar? Yep. Scimitar. 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 I've been wrong all this time. Oh, well. And I like how one of the guys... He says, give a man a sword, he makes a knife. Yeah, and right. then he does all the little twirls, and he's like, when you die, I'll give that to my daughter. Yeah, right. Oh, man. <laughs> so he doesn't back down, but he's like, that's neat. It's like going to a Tepon table where the guy's like, what's the flip, 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 flip. Oh, watch the onion turn into a locomotive. We took my son. Oh, yeah. That, he was fascinated. Awesome. Like, it was that's amazing. Awesome. It was like the, <laughs> the coolest thing he's seen in his short life. So also, this is where the woman is checking out his wounds after... After putting cow piss on it because of the ammonia. Is that what it is? Yeah. So ammonia, that, that totally makes sense. But So she, she goes and checks on it again and he like moans and she goes, that's a woman's noise in the book. Very different. And the book is very different because one of the other, one of the Vikings says, oh, look, he's still an Arab. Yikes. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> that's a little too far, right? But at this point in the movie, so this, this woman that comes in to help him, she tips him off that Wyglyph, which is Rothgar's son, is poisoning his ear yep. to them. Anders Anderson. Basically, <laughs> what he's saying is that Buell is going to try and take over. Right. The only reason he's here to save them is so he can overthrow them. Kind of like Lord of the Rings. Exactly. Exactly. And so this is why you get Rosetta Stone, Mick Beardy goatee, and they use him to kill the giant Fighting ginger. Fighting Mega Ginger. Which Going. happens almost exactly like in the book. Ver- Batum. There is part of the book that he talks about this tradition, and I think it comes from the manuscript, or, or maybe it comes from other other Viking. It doesn't come from the manuscript of Fabon, but they talk about how they have three shields, but they have to they had put on put out a, a skin, and they so it's like sumo wrestling. Yeah, exactly. so it's like sumo wrestling. You have to keep or one foot on the skin. Yeah. That's awesome. 
Yeah, it was pretty cool. Yeah, so I, really, I feel like it's really cool too how they were just, even though it was clearly one faction against another, they were still showing respect with yeah. tapping the shield. And so a lot of people online, again, because I read everything I could find about this movie, people were like, oh, it's so dumb that he would do this and show himself as weak. If he's if he knew he could kill him the whole time, that he should have just killed him. That's what Fadlan's upset about. That's why he's like, dude, why didn't you kill him? But the point that he's making is now they have to wonder. Right. Fear. It's just like Dwight on The Office where he's like, <laughs> when he's fucking with Jim with the snowball fight. It's fear, man. Now they have to second guess everything. They have to second guess if every single thing that these guys have done is methodical to try and overthrow them. It's so good. And people are like, uh-huh. I wish there was a little more blood on the guy that gets his head lopped Gang? off. Yeah, especially if you're adding all this gore, fucking make a geyser out of it. Yeah, nothing. They, they also talked about being cunning in battle is highly respected. I don't know how much that plays into that, but... The shrewdness of it all, yeah. Because, I mean, a lot of people will look at archers and say that it's kind of like weak, you know, like a sniper or something like that. Like, oh, well, you're not actually in the fray of it. You could totally get around that and still be an honorable Viking and, and die in battle and stuff. So right. to be clever and cunning is still a very valued idea. So Valon ends up, after that scene, he ends up bringing food up to the watchtower where Jean-Claude Vadam is sitting up in a tree. And there's a little foreshadowing here. He hears what sounds like thunder. And he talks about those are the thunder cliffs. So that obviously comes in later in the movie. Is this where you start hearing about the fireworm also? I think he brings that so up, the, right? Actually, earlier when they first returned to the village, they had, a, they had a guy from another village. Oh, that's right. The old that's guy. Right. And he was talking about their, their bear men, their creatures, and then the fireworm. So that's when you first hear about it. And so after he brings up the food to the guy in the watchtower, and they, the Thundercliffs. Who's not in the tower. He's in the he's tree. He's in the tree. Which again, that dude, I love that he's like one step ahead every time. You know, like when it comes to getting right. in the cave, he's like, don't worry. You're I mean, he's very shrewd. I really, really like him as a character. I wish that they paired these guys up a little bit more because I, that's a cool dynamic right. they have. And so then they start to see the, the fire. And so he zip lines from a tree to the tower and he's like, good game. <laughs> Again, the British are coming. <laughs> so good. I love it. It's so silly to have a zip line, but just like in Home Alone, doesn't need to make sense. Looks cool. So they get back to town and this is everything. Everybody's jumping to action. The gates are closing. Everybody's running. They get everything like shored up basically. And there's another child running like a girl that didn't make it. I feel like it. we just saw that. Yeah, it's a little <laughs> redundant. <laughs> it's uh, weird because I remember like in thinking back on the movie, having not seen it in a while, I consolidated those. And then when watching this, as soon as I saw the boy, I was like, oh, wait. They do this exact thing again in right. like an hour. But then this is where Fadlan gets to show off his jumping skills. Yeah. <laughs> so he jumps right. out, he goes, and then it makes sense though, because he gets to see this is where you see the fireworm is not a, f- a worm. It's it's people with tor- on horseback with torches and a lot of them. People are people, so why should it be? <laughs> So he gets the child and this is a really cool scene because as he gets back, the sun is setting and it it transitions really fast from like daylight to to nighttime. But the fire that is approaching through the fog, is just completely lit up and it looks like the apocalypse. How long do you think it took them to choreograph that? I don't know. (laughs) Where did all the money go for the budget? Horses. (laughs) Probably horses. Michelle would have loved this. (laughs) Well, that's one of the interesting things they talk about in the novelization or the novelization, the novel as well, that they don't care about killing the animal. So they're aiming with those spikes 
for the horse to fell it to get the guy. Michelle probably wouldn't have liked that. Yeah, so they, that, I was about to say, maybe want to step that back. You know, I was explaining to her the movie and she was like, I feel like I've seen it once upon a time. I might have turned it off maybe. And I was like, was it the horse violence maybe? It was probably the horse violence. Oh, for sure. <laughs> Hergar had a, a good line or it might have been from the book, but he said, oh, a man off a horse is half a man. Yep. Wow, that's pretty cool. So they basically, the the Windle just attack. They're throwing their torches. They're throwing the spears. The spears were actually based off of Roman, not Pilum. So but, they're uh, almost like mini spears, it looks like. They were. Right? Yeah. They're like almost darts. They are, yeah. It's meant to puncture and fall. It's not meant to, it's right, not a it's, lance. It's a very different mechanism in strategy and warfare. It's like an incapacitating thing. Yep. It's not something that's supposed to be like completely lethal. Exactly. And they know that because that's the thing. Like you don't have people with armed weaponry if you behind the gate if you don't think people are getting through. And they know they are. So, Falun, he, he knocks one of them off. He knocks off the bearhead and he sees it's a man. And he, he basically it's a man. He, it's a man. He goes like berserker rage I and goes it. on a kill streak. <laughs> I love the he does this like this is like the exact amount of crazy that I like because he it, you could see the. And I don't know if it's me reading into it because I like the book and everything. I might just be crazy because I'm, you know, I'm obviously a biased source. But it seems to me the way he's portraying it is he's more mad now because a he realizes that this is people attacking people and it is disgusting and vile for that reason. This isn't a mindless beast. And then b he's emboldened by the capability of you're just a man, you're just like me, and I could kill you just the right. same. Right. It almost it almost seems like he was upset that he revered these creatures. Yeah, he feels duped. He's like it's just a man, and then he goes buck wild. And this is also the scene where you get the crazy cool sequence where you have the camera on like the four bear horsemen riding because they repeat that in the second battle as well. When they're coming through and there's torches and there's spikes and everything, everything is so dynamic. I mean, this is truly from here on this movie. I like I said, I put it up against Lord of the Rings, any sword and sorcery film, including Clone and the Barbarian. And you guys know how crazy I am about. Yeah, that I feel like it's very similar to Braveheart. Oh, it's so good, right? You have the scene where the old man is dying in the background, getting hit with the arrows. He's pin cushioned. But what's crazy about that? He's in the background of the scene. In the foreground, you have people and horses running through the front showing that's just something. That's just one thing that's happening in this battle where everything's ablaze. People are dying. Blood and guts galore. Yeah, I'm fucking, I'm so erect right now. <laughs> that's the right response. To, okay, whatever. It's cool. Then the other guy that was firing off those arrows, it's like he was on top and you're like, okay, stop firing the arrows because there's a guy right in front of you and you're like, okay, you're basically, you're in wow and you're the hunter that's like in melee range. Like, dude, come on. He forgot his trap. Run away, please. It was a cool scene, though, because it was like silhouetted. Oh, absolutely. It looks great. And And I love the fact he basically has to confront his own. Like, he's, he's doomed. He goes to kind of reach for it, and he's like, I'm, I'm just done. Did we talk about the, they made the stand with the spears for the horse, the horses were cor- coming? We touched on it. And yeah. then, so yeah, they impale themselves, and Fadlon gets like super worked up, like this is happening, and he's like, ah! It's a metaphor for his dick. <laughs> so after that, the horns blow in the distance, and the wind will start retreating, 
And after the battle, there's all the buildings are in burning. I think four of the 13 are dead at this point. So they lost two more. Yeah, yep. but Fedlung also gets his dick wet. Yeah. And then, <laughs> well, they also, he gets offered mead and he's like, I can't drink fermented grape or wheat. And the guy laughs. He's like, it's made of honey. It's so good. Little brother. Yeah. And then, so the woman, the, the blonde chick that was tending his wounds. Who he takes to bone zone. Mm. She was tending other things in the wounds. Mm-hmm. Let's just say cow piss isn't the only thing in his wounds after that, Whoa. right? Oh, juices were flying. <laughs> so he wakes up the 13th squirtier. <laughs> I'm sorry. My mother-in-law said the other day when I made a joke, you just take it too far. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of the only thing I'm good at. So in the morning, they see a window up close because they didn't get to drag them all away. And you kind of see that it's more or less, um, it's a man, but different features. He has a pronounced brow. And in the book, they describe them as actually being like super hairy. Yeah. And I don't, I don't really remember hairy and a pronounced brow and different facial features, but definitely some sort of variation of man. Variation of man. Yeah. There's no question about it. They know that there's, it's a skew, but. In the book, they really like kind of hammer down the Neanderthalic element of it. But then basically, they're trying to figure it out. They go trying to get their revenge. They go on the hunt and the offensive. And saying, hey, it's a man. It's got to sleep, right? They get to this place. Nobody's there. I like this. I like the fact that they figure it out as almost like a riddle. Like, oh, it's a, he thinks it's a man. Where's the cave? I like that a lot because in the book, really weirdly, they just know They just go everything. straight to it. Yeah, they okay. just know that there's these caves. They know that this... And I'm like, you didn't know it was a human 10 minutes ago. Isn't it funny how usually it's the other way around where the story is just hammers down so much detail, whereas in the movie, it's usually like, okay, let's completely skip storyline and just go straight to the sucker punch. But no, in the movie, they actually give a little bit more detail, a little more bread, breadcrumbs, and then it's completely opposite with the book. Because in the book, they're like, oh... We can go in the Thunder Caves. And they, they actually drop down. like it, So they drop down in the cave in the movie, but they're already in. In the book, they like drop down and enter through a cave that's not accessible without like rope. Oh, and they okay. kind of just know where it's at, like Jake said. So yeah. Yeah. It's okay. really odd that they just know. I think it was kind of neat how they were kind of wondering how the hell we're going to actually get into said encampment. Right. And then you have, I don't know who it was who dressed up as one of the cavemen. But I, they don't really show who it was. I don't remember. I, don't I think remember. they just show somebody wearing. They kill somebody, right? Oh, yeah. And then they show. They just cloak they just show it, yeah. somebody cloaked up, you know, in the out, in the outfit, and they're like, "Hey, bud, say the secret code." So, so <laughs> knock, knock. Who's there? <laughs> Your butt that's about to be kicked. So we're going a little over, but the. So before they went, they went and saw a prophet, this old woman. Because each town and village has their own angel of death. <laughs> Truly, but. But okay, so but in the book, we have to talk about this. The book, they go and they see the dwarves. So fucking weird. <laughs> but what? it makes sense in Norse, myth Norse mythology is the dwarves. Obviously, from you see it in, in Thor. Yep, Thor's hammer and everything is created by dwarves. But they mean like, so the idea of truly little people, it could be little or it could be truly like what we would classify medically as a dwarf now. In Arabic culture and stuff, they even talk about people perceive them to be truly honest and earnest, and they were trustworthy, so they could be endowed with money and stuff. So that's why Gringotts in Harry Potter, they're all dwarf goblins. That's basically what it's referring to. So they go to the dwarves who make the weapons that they fight with. The daggers that they use on their stealth mission are from these truly dwarves who have a soothsayer. It is 
the weirdest part of the book. But also, it's it's also Michael Crichton melding or, or turning mythology into something that's somewhat plausible. Where he talks about if you give birth to a dwarf, it's considered lucky, very lucky, and you take the dwarf to live with the other dwarves. So, so you're gathering the just miss. Yeah, they're they're like it happens like enough. Them, yeah, happens enough where. There's like a small society of them, but they're like also when they kind shot of the Wizard of Oz and they had the town up in <laughs> Pasadena. Do you remember that? There's no. a movie about that where they actually it's like during the shooting of the Wizard of Oz. I think it's called Over the Rainbow, and they're all inhabiting a motel or a hotel, and they're basically the devil. It's like gremlins, but with dwarf people. I've never heard of that. So they go and they find the bears on the thing, and they go and they they find the cave and they go in, and so they're going along the cave interests they kill a few of them they come across a statue right they come the across giant mother the, statue it's under the rainbow is the movie sorry oh, keep okay. going. yeah it's like it looks like a giant like a fertility statue like like to call it and this is where you see like the thousands of skulls and they're all like the the top of the skulls and they're all upside down like bowls so in the book they came across a village that was outside and it was just like huts and stuff and they came across in one of the rooms there was a chair and they they describe with all the skulls ar- everywhere around it, and they describe the chair as having white cheesy material, which was the brain matter, like oh, smeared, like smeared on it. So like that's, that's where crazy. like the leader was like sitting there eating, okay. chowing down. And like, the window knew they were coming, so they retreated and they left, abandoned that, and they left and go into the caves. That, that part totally reminded me of As Above, So Below, yep. where you see the the bowl. Right, French. Yep. Yeah, it's kind of cool. So as they're sneaking through the caves, we get this is where you really get a look at the the Windle and their their facial features, and they definitely look like cave. So during this scene, it emphasized to me that they can't see very well, like at all, like the descent. No, like I feel like they're just they're they're so far into the cave and they stay there for so long that they kind of know what each other or what where each other are based on the sounds, but maybe they don't necessarily see that well because the way they were crawling in front of them and it just seemed like they were almost right in front of them. Yeah. But maybe it was just the way it was shot. I think I it was know. just the way it was shot. I, I also kind of maybe thought that that was why they only attacked at night and within the mist. Oh, maybe sense. something when it comes to it being daylight, it's too bright for them. I think that's actually a pretty cool idea. So as they're spelunking through the cave, I said that this is like Uncharted meets God of War meets Prince of Persia. And I really love the image of them swinging through the waterfall. Yeah, it's really cool. Super cool. And they just keep working their way down. And I love that when little brother, when he's swinging, he kind of spins as he's swinging, just like John McClane. That's a McTiernan trope, if you will. So I like the fact that when they finally get to the you know matriarch, the heads of their friends are entwined in the oh, vines. Oh, so cool! It reminds me of Predator. Yeah, exactly. These are not only her trophies, but her food. As she dips her one little finger into the poison. This is hubris. This is why the giant man falls. He could have just killed her just as easily as he did the other guy. He doesn't just stab at her at a distance. He fights yeah, her. He tr- feels cocky and gets one little scratch, and that does it. In the book, it's just a pin to the stomach. But then they decide to start running out. This is where the guy who I would have called Mick Foley, if I would have remembered to do it in the nicknames, he just says, I'm not running anymore. Yeah, he gets he gets slammed in the chest, right? And you were like, oh, wow, good thing you told the guys, fuck you, I'm not taking this armor off. And it doesn't really help him. I just like when he's like, today was a good day. And he's just like ready to die. And he does it like in, in like a great sacrifice to give him. I think him that's just, what's such like a boss move to do. So cool. Yeah. 
so they start to escape and they get to an impasse. And like, oh shit, we can't oh, go anywhere. Oh man, we were following water and now it leads to nothing. What the fuck? So the guys are thinking, oh, it's thunder. We we hear thunder. And then Fadlon's like, shut the fuck up. Well, he, <laughs> one of the guys goes, oh, to make it worse, now it's going to rain. Yeah. And Fadlon's like, ding. It reminds him of thunder and from the surf. And so they he says... They decide to swim out, so they just dive down and pop up in Malibu. Reminds me of Goonies. Yeah. They dive in, in this mystical cave with all these rope bridges and everything. They come out in Santa Monica. Pretty crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they make it back to the town, and Bolvi is basically dying. And they say he'll be buried as a king here. And Fadlin's like, oh, dude, I'm so happy this is over. And Rosetta sounds like, it's not it's over, not dude. Over. What, Just do you, what do you think is going to happen? And one of the really, this is what, again, the story is not Fadlon's story. It's the story of Bulif and, and how that story is written. Because what he tells Fadlon is, I'm no king. I gave up my kingdom to come here. My, my legacy is what you write down. This is the important thing. This is my last stand. And this that's what makes this true poetry, right? So when he comes out and there's the dog that's like limping behind him and he's this like emaciated looking character, this once proud king, and he has to fight in the shivering cold. Like this is just, it blows my mind. Like this whole scene is awesome. The scene where Fadlan is praying, I think is a beautiful representation. It's like, you know, like the writer said, it's not over-exaggerated. It's not overly melodramatic it's very much like in the perfect vein for me how do you guys feel is it too dramatic or good no it's perfect the actor for bullvite talked about so they're filming in canada and this he's he says that the scene is so great because it was pouring and they felt like shit like and it really comes across like so he was really he didn't have to sell it this he didn't is have basically to sell it how we were they, yeah they're, they felt miserable and they were out there in the soaking rain doing that and then the the prayer scene I loved even as an atheist. Yep. Like I like it was great. And he was he's sitting there on his knees and he's like, for all the things that I've never done or all the things I've wanted to do. And he's basically just laying it all out there. It was a great scene. It's almost like his last rites. One of my top five favorite films of all time is Conan the Barbarian. You'll recall, Kram, I've never prayed to you before. I have no tongue for it. No one, not even you, will remember if we were good men or bad. Why we fought or why we died. All that matters is that two stood against many. That's what was important. Valor pleases you, Krom. So grant me one quest. Grant me revenge. And if you do not listen, to hell with you. That is, it's a parallel. It's analogous. It's like, that's what it is. He's saying like, nothing matters. All that matters is what we do here. It's so good. Fuck everything. This is so good. (laughs) I won't do the stupid accent, but do you want me to do the quote? Do the, it. the prayer? Yeah. Sure. Do you, you wanted to do it. I could see in your face. No, I, think <laughs> we should, I think we should all do it together. Okay. Do you have it pulled up, Brian? Lo, there I do see my father. Whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. We're doing it together. Dope. Lo, there do I see. Lo, there do I see my father. Lo, there do I see my mother, my sisters, and my brothers. Lo, there do I see the line of my people back to the beginning. Lo, they do call to me. They bid me take my place on Asgard in the halls of Valhalla where the brave may live forever. And so people, again, talked a bunch of shit about this because they're like, well, Fadland didn't speak the language when the little lady said it on the boat. And I was like, fuckhead. That is what this whole movie is about, is the fact that he documented it. So in the six months or however long from that chick dying to now, when he's writing stuff down, he's asking questions of Rosetta Stone, calm the fuck 
down. Is that somewhat similar to the book translation? The book is a little bit different. I think this is more for meter and rhythm because basically the changes oh. are Lo, I see here my father and mother. Lo, now I see all my deceased relatives sitting. Lo, there is my master who is sitting in paradise. Paradise is so beautiful, so green. With him are his men and boys. He calls to me, so bring me to him. Because Basically, that's like, come kill me, biatch. So, yeah, I have nothing to lose. Yeah, well, yep. you have everything to gain. Right. To die with honor and go to Valhalla, that's the best gift. You're you're truly giving me something if you can do it. Seems like they're like the OG fanatics, basically. They're like, I have, I don't care. Kill me. Whatever. You're actually doing me a favor. There's a, an amazing animation called The Saga of Bjorn, B-I-O-R-N. It's done by the Animation Workshop, where it's this old Viking who just wants to die in battle. It is truly like my favorite animation of all time. It's like it's on par with anything Pixar has ever done. As they're saying the, I don't know what it's called. I call it the Valhalla prayer. But uh, so the Windle charge, so they were coming down, and it, everything goes pretty fast. It's a bullvine knocks the, the the leader of the Windle off his horse. He stabs him, and horns start blowing again, and they retreat again. Yep. And they kind of just they show them re- going like over the hill, and they all kind of just disappear. I feel like I would be the horn blower. I would just have my binoculars from far away, and I'd just be like, "Oh shit, one of our guys died." <laughs> That would be my role. Could you imagine if you like you saw the wrong guy? You're like, oh, nope, he's still alive. No, go back. <laughs> my bad. Unretreat. Unretreat. After the fight, it's it's rainy and Bullvi just kind of sits down on the, the like the battlements and he's surrounded by like these pikes and he just sits there and puts his sword it's down. So badass. And he just dies. And he's like he's sitting on like his throne yeah it's a really cool visual which is cool because he's essentially making his this his throne yep like making it his own i don't need some fancy fucking throne this is my throne right here it's awesome and then basically there's his funeral Fadlan goes back and they say like a, a nice you know silly kind of little goodbye and he goodbye north map <laughs> and that's the end of the movie it's a great movie I really, really like this movie. I'll probably sit down and watch it again within the next couple of days with Michelle. I was really worried that my sentimentality would overtake me and that that would be why I like it. But I can point to very specific things about this movie that make me like it. I could totally see why people wouldn't. Don't get that twisted at all. This is not a perfect movie, but I really like the ambition of it. I like the source material. I think it's awesome. It's a classic for me. Probably not going to beat Alien, but a classic. It's definitely classic. I agree with you. I feel like especially with all these different movies coming out that are being remade, I would really enjoy seeing a remake on this movie. Or and just a, not even like remake, but like a another take on it. Yeah, I think that's a fair okay. approach. Yeah, that, that makes sense. You could even do it as like a six-part, you know, Ooh, streaming service. That would be good. Like it's truly established who Fadlan was, why he leaves. Establish his quest just to the place. You're establishing the fear he has of these creatures. Him getting there, the interpoliticking actually meaning something. The first battle, the second battle. The caves. The yeah, yeah, absolutely. With the increase in, I guess, streaming services and the quality of stuff that's coming out, I can imagine like so many other things being made into like yeah. six-part series. Oh, yeah. That'd be great. We'll get, I mean, Prime's starting to ramp up their stuff. They're doing that Wheel of the Ring stuff and Wheel of Time. Yep. And then there's The Witcher on Netflix. Oh, Netflix. man, I can't wait for The Witcher. It's going to be so good. I hope. 
Well, yeah. fingers crossed. Video man. game slash book stuff doesn't always translate well. But Henry Cavill has a great ass, so I. <laughs> but I alone. mean, Mortal <laughs> Kombat's pretty great, right? No, not really. <laughs> Christopher Lambert. So Jim, classic. Yeah, classic, classic. I was, okay. I had, the, you know, I had the same worry that my nostalgia for it was going to like color it a lot. And but no, it's just there's so many good parts, and it's not that there's those parts that are just good. There are certain parts that are just absolutely great about it. Yeah, I truly think that like that sec, the second hour of this movie is as perfect as you can get. Like, you know, when you do something like let's say you're playing Tony Hawk's Pro Skater, you're about eighth grade, you finally hit that move finally hit it so the the first you're struggling you're not quite there but then you finally get it and you go fuck yeah <laughs> that's the second half of this movie the first half there's some good stuff but i mean you're not quite nailing it but then that second half you're like Ugh. yeah and you get into all those secret parts of the level yeah i should right? have said dave mira freestyle bmx too but i'm an idiot it's all good sorry guys what character would you always play burnquist muska well no i didn't play Tony Hawk that much. I, oh, I well then. I, that's what I'm saying. I played Dave Mira B, Freestyle BMX crazy amounts of time. I wasted probably years of my life playing that game. That's why uh, Black Sabbath Paranoid is like one of my all time favorite songs because of that fucking game. But anyway, completely tangential. <laughs> I would just like to say thank you all if you've stuck with us through this episode. It's a longer episode, but it's truly a joy for me to be able to do, and I appreciate anybody who's listening. I know that on some of our more self-indulgent episodes in the past, we have just not got the same listenership. Marvel Zombies, which I apologize for, <laughs> some of our other ones. But it truly means a lot that you would follow us on these kind of little journeys. I, I love this material. I love being excited about things. That's the greatest gift you can give yourself and others in life, I think, is to be excited about the time you have because you will literally never get it back. So if you were excited about this, or even if you weren't excited, but we made you excited, like I'm just so happy to share that with you. There are any episodes you want us to do in the future, even if it's somewhat tenuous. Like here, there's a little bit more of a basis because the movie was much more horrific at one point and they truly do slash. So it fits our nomenclature. But if there's something else you'd like to see, please reach out. Don't be afraid to reach out to us and express what you want. If we can and we think it's within the spirit of the show, we will find a way to do it. And if we can't do it you know, in a direct way, we could always do it as a bonus episode. We want to give you the content that you want because we want you to be as excited about this show as we are. We have shirts that are on sale now. They're $20. You have to pay for shipping because I'm not doing that. We have our Patreon, which our Patreon patrons are just the coolest people ever. We have a separate chat just for them. And it's always very fun and very supportive. And it's just a great place where people aren't shitty up to each other on the internet, which is like a rare little safe haven. And we have the Facebook, the Instagram, the Twitter, Slasher app, Horror Amino, uh, SlasherSpot at gmail.com, YouTube.com slash C slash Slasher's podcast. We're everywhere. Thank you all for helping. And Brian, Jim, say goodbye to these people so I stop rambling. If you ain't watching them dying, you ain't really trying. Enjoy fuckboy time. Until next week. And for these two fools that sit before me, uh, for Chad at home, who is squirting out his bum-bum pissy pants, I would like to say, go out there and do something you love. And remember that all work and no power play makes Jack a dull boy. God damn it. It happened. Somebody called me out, and I'm super self-conscious because I usually record these while my wife and baby are asleep at like four in the morning when I finally finish editing these episodes, 
And so as such, I have this like purring whisper. Oh, my name is Jake. This is the hidden track for this week. <laughs> but now I can't do that anymore. So thanks, Bone Church. Anyway, my new favorite band ever is Fairy Ring, spelled F-A-E-R-I-E, Ring. Ring like R-I-N-G, like Johnny Cash's Ring of Fire, which is obviously a metaphor for his butthole post-Taco Bell. I think that timeline actually does match up, except for the fact that June Carter wrote that song, if I'm not mistaken. I was led to believe that is the truth from Walk the Line when Renee Zellweger, I think that's the one? Nope, Reese Witherspoon. She's like, oh, it burns me! I wonder if there's an interesting anecdotal story behind one of Fairy Ring's songs. I don't know, because they were just kind enough to just send me their songs. And, oh yeah, a bunch of badass download codes for, I don't know, let's look here. 20 of our favorite listeners that's right if you made it through a record-setting long-ass episode about a movie that's tenuously a horror film in the 13th warrior guess what i'm not even gonna make this contest competitive you just send me a message on slashers whatever and just say password and I will send you the download link, and you can enjoy the sultry, savory, and seductive sounds of Fairy Ring. Their first record, The Clearing, was released with King Volume Records earlier this year. It's seven tracks of seduction. I dig this shit. Now, I saw somebody refer to them as uh, fuzz metal alchemists. Pretty apt description, if I don't mind saying so. Now, you can find them on facebook.com slash fairyringband, fairyring.bandcamp.com, and their main posting outlet is instagram.com slash fairy underscore ring. Enjoy this, comma, my favorite song, comma, on this newly released record, colon, Heavy Trip. 